Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better as Reddy Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 137th episode of the Nauticast titled New Nightmare, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Theon 5 in which Theon Greyjoy is introduced to the idea that his actions have consequences. Who would have thought? And weirdly, I know this is going to sound so strange, but he does not take this well at all. I can't relate to that process at all. I perfectly <laughs> accepted maturation and the, the consequences of my actions as a young man. Sure. No mistakes made. Sure. And here to take us through this gauntlet of, of uh, humiliation, uh, we're very uh, excited to uh, welcome our new guest to the show. Please welcome to the Nauticast, uh, Alicia Benton. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello, boys. <laughs> here we go. <clears throat> here we go. Yeah, no, um, I'm excited to be invited onto the show. I am excited to um, give the people what they want, which is just humiliating Jeff. Not going to happen. Forever. <laughs> never, Jeff's playing I'm never... Theon in this episode, <laughs> folks. Yes, she's uh, playing Asha. It's mm. it's Emmett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll play Ramsey. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah. I should make that. I should make that change in the document before we get this 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 shit on the road. But uh, but yeah, it's it's awesome, Abiola. Now, all joking aside, I don't know for folks who pay attention to our online squabbles, but they are merely online squabbles for the for the for the fans out there. Uh, okay, so are actually, friends in reality. I know it's weird, right? Wait, we're breaking character. Nah, not well. After the synopsis, we can break character. Okay. We right. have to stay awesome. in character and through the synopsis. We're already yeah, off the rails. <laughs> all right. <laughs> All right. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas, and wielder of the Valyrian Steel, Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the deep ones. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Jume, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gem that was promised, the High Bearded Priest. Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., who, by the way, passed his bar today. Congratulations to you, Frank. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, War of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adonis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Energy Gent, the True Master of the Banefort and True Master of Coin, Lord Penchant for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stand and Bastard of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Thems, Haldover, the waiter for T-Well, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant, Glor- <laughs> Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Venerys of House Galarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portia of the Realm, Lady Reels of the Seven Kingdoms, Blunder Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpio of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh. No, Bastard Bunny Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, the Knight who was guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar, 
and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna the Lovely Castellan, Pat Iroh the Blood Royal, and Guardian of the Bone Way. Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, Warren of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorse, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North, and Protector of the Tri-State. Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord of Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel Good Times, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone give a warm welcome to Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and patron of the Free Wheeling Bisexuals. Thank you to all of our non Small counselors, and welcome to Lady Ivory Dane. Thank you, as always, to our counselors, and welcome to Lady Day. And just when I think the names on the council can't get better, they always do. I love it. It's so great. All these names are fantastic. And if you folks are a lot of small counselors or high lords and ladies, and you want to change your name or add new aspects to your titles, please let us know on our Patreon messaging system or choose an email at notacastasof at gmail.com. Our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Windswinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Patrick Blackfire, a High Lord patron, who asks, What do you guys think about Theon being named after Theon Stark? Maybe since Balon was planning to rebel and return to the Old Way, he named Theon for a legendary reaver that expelled land-loving Ironborn from the North, a place that didn't follow the Old Way. To take it further, though, why did George add Theon Stark to the story? Theon Stark in House Bolton's story lines up with Theon Greyjoy and Ramsay. Ramsay was born by the Weeping Water. The Battle of Weeping Water is where Theon Stark and the Boltons came together to expel Andals from the north. The Boltons and Theon Stark tortured and tied Argo Sevenstar to the prow of his ship before seeking revenge for his invasion. Theon Greyjoy and Ramsay's story is also filled with torture. We also have Euron tying his brother, a holy man he doesn't agree with, to his prow to go on an invasion. We don't know Argos is a holy man, but he's named Seven Stars, so we can assume so. Theon Stark also expelled Ironborn from the north. Theon Greyjoy expelled Ironborn from the north at Moat Caelan. Theon Stark is also remembered as gaunt and constantly at war. Theon Greyjoy is certainly gaunt and could be considered always at war, a hostage from the age of ten, part of the War of Five Kings, the Ironborn invasion, captured Winterfell, and eventually participated in the Battle of Winterfell and War for the Dawn. So with all these connections between Theon Stark and Greyjoy, why did Balin name his son Theon, and what is the history trying to tell us through foreshadowing? <laughs> So, Jeff, what do you think? Is What's the connection between Theon Stark down in the crypts and Theon Greyjoy? What's George doing there? It's a gr- This is a really great question. And I think this really comes down to how George writes the story. And that I think like a lot of the stuff that Pat is talking about, who's a great follow on Twitter, and also a barber, I believe, as well. Um, so if you're looking to get your hair cut, I believe in, in Illinois or maybe Indiana. I think it's Illinois. Check him out. But, um, but yeah, I, I think um, – so I think what happened first is that George wrote the character of Theon. And then – Years down the road, 20 years later, he decides, oh, okay, I've got this character Theon Greyjoy, and now I'm also writing the backstory for a lot of the history about Theon Stark, about all of the backstory between the Boltons and the Starks and the Ironborn. And he started to go like, okay, so how do I actually frame the history in a a way that's congruent with the main narrative? And I think what he ended up doing is taking a look at Theon Greyjoy as a character and being like, okay, so Theon does this thing. So I'm going to have this occur in the backstory here down the road. So I tend I tend to think that it's either that or George didn't really give it a lot of thought that these are just mere like coincidences. But I know that George is like a very, um, is a very 
detailed, in-depth writer and tends to be very grounded in the mythology, not the mythology necessarily, but in the backstory, at least, of these characters. So what I think he, he what he ended up doing is taking Theon Greyjoy and then writing out the characteristics of Theon and some of the backstory of Theon itself and then writing it into the greater historical lore that's surrounding A Song of Ice and Fire. So that's what I think George is doing with Theon, being named after Theon Stark. But I'm curious what you all think about this. I agree. I don't think... I think Theon clearly came first in this situation, and then George, as he started investing more in Theon's character and realizing he was going to keep him around for a while, have some important chapters with him, decided to give him an echo in the backstory. Like, he gives a lot of characters echoes in the backstory, and this is kind of Theon little earned his little place, his little shadow. And I think it's also just to establish that there's, you know, a connection between Theon and the Starks. I don't know if—so, yeah, I don't know if it's a literal in-universe connection that George has thought through in terms of Balin— literally naming Theon after this guy. I think that's this is George saying, hey, look, a Theon with the name of Stark. Isn't that there are connections between Theon and the Starks and he feels like half a Stark? And I think it's, I think it's tying into that more than, uh, more than anything else going on with the characters themselves. So if I really tried to add on anything deep, <laughs> I feel like I'd be like really, really reaching. Um, there are a couple of things that are like, I don't know. One joke might get me kicked off your show after this. <laughs> I'm already, already, I've already got the ban button ready to go. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I did notice that Theon Stark had um, conquered a part of the fingers. I mm-hmm. thank you. Um, ah, there we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> Brilliant. There we but, go. But um, no, I think even within universe, if Theon Greyjoy came first and Theon Stark came afterwards, mm-hmm. George knows how to wrap things up. And I used to kind of wonder to myself, like, why would Balon Greyjoy name one of his sons <laughs> Theon Stark? And then I came to realize, like, it doesn't have to be that deep. I mean, <laughs> true. I mean, true. you do have to keep in mind Theon is his third son. I mean, I know it's not unheard of, <laughs> you know, like right. You run out point, of good names, and you just start looking. Right. It's it's kind of your throwaway child at that point. Like right, I don't, right. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, he's got a daughter, um, but I mean, I I can see him admiring certain aspects of Theon Stark. So I I think there was a little bit of admiration there. I don't mm. think at that point when he named Theon, he was really like I know he had ambitions. Like he did want to bring back Reaving and all that, but I don't think he foresaw that. Robert Baratheon was going to come kicking down his gates, you know, um, kill his first two sons, basically put Pike to the torch, you know? So, I mean, to me, it's plausible and it's, it's like Emma said, it's a nice little tie in to the Starks and, you know, I'll talk about it later about Theon and the Starks Mm -hmm. and sure. Yeah. So thank you so much to Lord Pat for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast A-S-O-I-A-F where you can get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, and more. Absolutely. And we hope that you all have been enjoying our episode on the Pink Letter if you're one of our patrons. And of course, if you're not one of our patrons, our sample episode of our second of five parts on The Forsaken, uh, known as The Second Coming, is out for you all on the main feed. And if you like what you heard there, again, there are three more parts on The Forsaken as well as our analysis on the movie Kingdom of Heaven, that masterpiece, and of course, that aforementioned Pink Letter episode. And like 34. 75, 2,000 other episodes on the Patreon uh, feed, so check them all out. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Theon, he had gone joyriding through the Wolfswood, playing a fun game of hide-and-go-seek with Bran and Rickon. But having not found the boys, Theon grew 
worried for his foster brothers. So he asked for a hint on Bran and Rickon's location from his really, really good friend, Reek. And Reek had told Theon where Bran and Rickon's hiding spot was. Let's find out what happens after Theon finds some boys in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Theon 5. The sky was a gloom of cloud, the woods dead and frozen. Roots grabbed at Theon's feet as he ran, and bare branches lashed his face, leaving thin stripes of blood across his cheeks. He crashed through, heedless, breathless, icicles flying to pieces before him. Mercy, he sobbed. From behind came a shuddering howl that curdled his blood. Mercy, mercy! When he glanced back over his shoulder, he saw them coming, great wolves the size of horses with the heads of small children. Oh, mercy, mercy! Blood dripped from their mouths, black as pitch, burning holes in the snow where it fell. Every stride brought them closer. Theon tried to run faster, but his legs would not obey. The trees all had faces, and they were laughing at him, laughing, and the howl came again. He could smell the hot breath of, beast, of the beast behind him, a stink of brimstone and corruption. They're dead! Dead! I saw them killed, he tried to shout. I saw their heads tipped and dipped in tar, but, but when he opened his mouth, only a moan emerged, and then something touched him, and he whirled, shouting. Huh. That's an interesting way to start the chapter. And weird that Theon and I have the same dream every single night. It's so weird. Theon grabs the dagger for his dagger, knocks it away, and finally comes to with Wex and Reek in the room. He demands to know why they're there, and Reek tells Theon that they're there because Asha has arrived, and Theon left instructions to wake him when she did. Theon thinks it's good and goddamn time that Asha had finally shown her ass up. He sees that it's dawn in Winterfell and asks where she is. The Great Hall with her men comes to reply. And so Theon gets out of bed, demands hot water, and tries to shake the dream of the boys with wolves' faces. Weird how the bedchamber still felt cold. All his dreams had been cold of late, and each more hideous than the last. Last night, he had dreamed himself back in the mill again, on his knees dressing the dead. The limbs were already stiffening, so they seemed to resist sudden, sullenly as he fumbled at them with half-frozen fingers, tugging up breeches and knotting laces, yanking fur trim boots over hard, unbending feet, buckling a studded leather belt around a waist no bigger than the span of his hands. This, this was never what I wanted, he told them as he worked. They, they gave me no choice. The corpses made no answer, but only grew colder and heavier. The night before, it had been the miller's wife. Theon had forgotten her name, but he remembered her spotty, soft, pillowy breasts and stretch marks on her belly, the way she clawed on his back when he fucked her. Last night in his dream, he had been in bed with her once again, but this time she had teeth above and below, and she tore out his throat even as she was gnawing off his manhood. It was madness. He'd seen her die, too. Gelmar had cut her down with one blow of his axe as she cried to Theon for mercy. Leave me, woman. It was him who killed you, not me. And he's dead as well. At least Gelmar did not haunt Theon's sleep. Wex shows back up with water and Theon bathes himself, taking his time in revenge for Asha taking her time to get there. He gets on his good boy prince clothes and then he remembers that Asha was into blades more than fashion. So he changes again, this time into soldier boy clothes and straps his sword and dagger to himself, totally not hoping to hashtag own Asha by having the knives this time, unlike the last time when Asha humiliated him in Pike. Finally, he puts on his big boy crown. Actually, it's not a big boy crown. It's an ugly ass crown. Since Micken had unexpectedly passed away, Theon had to use a less than ideal smith, and he was dog shit. I, too, hate reaping what I've sowed. Theon heads out with Reek, Urzen, and Krom, and God, we're just back to Ironborn mothers hating their sons by giving them grunts for names. Theon thinks that everyone in Winterfell wants him dead, so he has guards with him everywhere. And Theon knows this because all sorts of his Ironborn bros were turning up dead, pushed down steps, throats slit, tossed down wells. He could not let the killings go unpunished. Farlan was, was as likely a suspect as any. So Theon sat in judgment, called him guilty, and condemned him to death. Even that went sour. 
As he knelt to the block, the Cutmaster said, My lord Eddard always did his own killings. Theon had to take the axe himself or look a weakling. His hands were sweating, so the shaft twisted in his grip as he swung, and the first blow landed between Farland's shoulders. It took three more cuts to hack through all that bone and muscle and sever the head from the body, and afterwards he was sick, remembering all the times they'd sat over a cup of mead talking of hounds and hunting. I had no choice, he wanted to scream at the corpse. The Ironborn can't keep secrets. They had to die, and someone had to take the blame for it. He only wished he had killed him cleaner. Ned Stark had never needed more than a single blow to take a man's head. But now the killings had stopped, but his bros were anxious. They weren't scared of fighting a foe in the open, but this cloak and dagger bullshit scared the bejesus out of them. Black Lauren had a little suggestion for this. We would do well to leave this place. I am the Prince of Winterfell, Theon shouted. This is my seat. No man will drive me from it, nor no woman either. Asha, it was her doing. My, my own sweet sister. But the others bugger her with the sword. She wanted him dead so she could steal his place as his father's heir. That's why she had let him languish here, ignoring the urgent commands he had sent her. Man, it's it's really awesome how Theon is totally not giving it to paranoia here. That would be really unfortunate if he did that. Regardless, he finds Asha sitting in the high seat of the Starks, eating some chicken while her men and Theon's men were swapping stories. In fact, it's so loud that no one notices Theon entering. But then Theon realizes that there's only 50 guys in the hall, most of them his. Where was everyone else? All the people Asha was supposed to bring. Well, that's everyone, according to Theon's very good friend, Reek. How many men did Asha bring? Uh, 20? Angry, Theon marches over to Asha and... <laughs> Fine. Alicia, don't you dare fucking smile. Would you play the part of Asha that people demanded? <clears throat> yes, I would love to. <laughs> Why? Tis the Prince of Winterfell. She tossed the bone to one of the dogs, sniffing about the hall. Under that, that hawk's beak of a nose, her wide mouth twisted in a mocking grin. Or is it the Prince of Fools? Envy ill becomes a maid. Asha sucked grease from her fingers. A lock of black hair fell across her eyes. Her men were shouting for bread and bacon. They made a deal of noise, as few as they were. Envy, Theon? What else would you call it? With 30 men, I captured Winterfell in a night. You needed a thousand and a moon's turn to take Deepwood Mott. Well, I'm no great warrior like you, brother. She quaffed half a horn of ale and wiped her mouth with the back of her hand. I saw the heads above your gates. Tell me true. Which one gave you the fiercest fight? The cripple or the babe? This is literally like the worst day of my life that I have to let you play someone owning me online, which never, ever actually happens in real life. But I'm just giving this to you just this one time, just one time. You break still. The worst day of my life. Theon feels his, his face getting flushed and he knows, just knows that he took no joy from killing those children. And then the reactions of everyone back in Winterfell made it worse. Old Nan, old Nan stood with her soft, toothless mouth, toothless mouth opening and closing soundlessly. And Farland threw himself at Theon, snarling like one of his hounds. Urzan and Caldwell had to beat him senseless with the butts of their spears. How did I come to this? He remembered thinking as he stood over the fly, speckled bodies. Only Maester Lewin had the stomach to come near. Stone-faced, the small gray man had begged leave to sew the boys' heads back onto their shoulders so they may be laid to the crypts below with the other Stark dead. No, Theon had told him, not the crypts. But why, my lord? Surely they cannot harm you now. It is where they belong, all the bones of the Starks. I said no! He needed the heads for the wall, but he had burned the headless bodies that very day in all their finery. After it, he had knelt among the bones and ashes to retrieve a slag of melted silver and cracked jet. All that remained of the wolf's head brooch that had once been Bran's. He had it still. Back to the present, Theon claims he treated Bran and Rickon generously, and they so totally earned their fates. 
Asha tells Theon that everyone earns their fates, which just drives Theon up a fucking wall. Besides, how were the 20 dudes Asha brought supposed to help him hold Winterfell? 10, Asha corrected. The others return with me. You wouldn't want your own sweet sister to brave the dangers of the wood without an escort, would you? There are dire wolves prowling in the dark. She uncoiled from the great stone seat and rose to her feet. Come, let us go somewhere we can speak more privily. Theon knows that Asha slash Alicia is right, and he hates that. He leads her up to Ned Stark's solar, where he declares to her that Dagmar Clefjaw had gotten his ass defeated by Roger Cassell. Asha concurs, adding in more detail that Theon doesn't know. His shield wall was broken by Mount of Northmen, but Dagmar is alive at least. He was moving back to the stony shore. Theon realizes that Asha knows more than she does, so to counter, he tells Asha that the Manderleys are moving knights, siege engines, and war horses up river by barge, while the Umbers are gathering at the last river. He's going to have a ton of Northmen at his gate soon, and Asha brought only ten dudes? I need not have brought you any. I commanded you. Father commanded me to take Deepwood Mott. She snapped. He said nothing of me having to rescue my little brother. Bugger deep wood, he said. It's a wooden piss pot on a hill. Winterfell is the heart of the land. But how am I to hold it without a garrison? You might have thought of that before you took it. Oh, it was certain. It was cleverly done. I'll grant you. If only you'd had the good sense to raise the castle and carry the two little princelings back to Pike as hostages, you might have won the war in a stroke. Oh, you'd like that, wouldn't you? To see my prize reduced to ruins and ashes. Your prize will be the doom of you. Krakens rise from the sea, Theon. Or did you forget that during your years among the wolves? Our strength is in our long ships. My wooden piss pot sits close enough to the sea for supplies and fresh men to reach me whenever they are needful. But Winterfell is hundreds of leagues inland, ringed by woods, hills, and hostile holdfasts and castles. And every man in a thousand leagues is your enemy now. Make no mistake. You made certain of that when you mounted those heads on your gatehouse. Asha shook her head. How could you be such a bloody fool? Children. They defied me, he shouted in her face, and it was blood for blood besides. Two sons of Eddard Stark to pay for Roderick and Marin. The words tumbled out heedlessly, but Leon knew at once that his father would approve. I've laid my brother's ghosts to rest. Asha tells Theon it's our brothers, and she doesn't really believe him anyhow. Theon snarls at Asha that she doesn't understand that men need vengeance. Maybe Balin won't be about Winterfell, but he'd love his son avenging his dead brothers, right? Asha snorted back a laugh. This Sir Roderick may well feel the same manly need. Did you think that? You are blood of my blood, Theon, whatever else you may be. For the sake of the mother who bore us both, return to Deepwood Mott with me. Put Winterfell to the torch and fall back while you still can. No, Theon adjusted his crown. I, I took this castle and I mean to hold it. His sister looked at him a long time. Then hold it, you shall. She said, for the rest of your life, she sighed. I say it tastes like folly, but what would a shy maid know of such things? At the door, she gave him one last mocking smile. You ought to know, that's the ugliest crown I've ever laid eyes on. Did you make it yourself? Last time I'm ever getting owned online, I promise you that. Asha departs Winterfell, leaving only 10 of her men behind, and she rubs salt in Theon's wound by leaving the same gate that Bran and Rickon very definitely used to escape. Theon watches all this from the walls and thinks maybe he should have listened to her. But then Reek is there at his elbow asking if she's gone. Theon hadn't heard him arrive. He hadn't smelled him either. Really, Theon should have killed Reek when he had the chance. But killing Reek made Theon feel nervous. Somehow Reek could read and write and maybe he left behind a hidden account of what they'd done. So he couldn't kill him, I guess. 
But Lord Prince, if you'll pardon me saying, it's not right for you to abandon you, for her to abandon you. And ten men, that won't be near enough. I'm well, of that, where of, I'm well aware of that, Theon said. So was Asha. Well, might be I could help you, said Reek. Give me a horse and a bag of coin and I could find you some good fellas. Theon narrowed his eyes. How many? A hundred, might be. Two hundred, maybe more. He smiled, his pale eyes glinting. Ah, I was born up here in the north. I know many a man and many a man knows Reek. Reek can just summon 200 men just like that? That's so strange, so odd. But surely, Ramsay, Reek isn't up to something. So Theon says, do it, and Reek can name any reward he wants. Ah, well, Reek wants Pala since she's already been had. Theon had gone too far with Reek to turn back now. 200 men and she's yours, but a man less and you could go back to fucking pigs. Reek was gone before the sun went down, carrying a bag of stark silver in the last of Theon's hopes. Like as not, I'll never see the rich again, he thought bitterly, but even so, the chance had to be taken. And then big boy Theon heads to bed and has another really, really fun dream. That night, he dreamed of the feast Ned Stark had thrown when King Robert came to Winterfell. The hall rang with music and laughter, though the cold winds were rising outside. At first, it was all wine and roast meat, and Theon was making japes and eyeing the serving girls and having himself a fine time, until he noticed that the room was growing colder. The music did not seem so jolly then. He heard discords and strange silences and notes that hung in the air bleeding. Suddenly, the wine turned bitter in his mouth, and when he looked up from his cup, he saw that he was dining with the dead. King Robert sat with his guts spilling out on the table from the great gash in his belly, and Lord Eddard was headless beside him. Corpses lined the benches below, gray-brown flesh sloughing off their bones as they raised their cups to toast, worms crawling in and out of the holes that were their eyes. He knew them, every one. Jory Cassell and Fat Tom, Porther and Kane, Holland and the Master of Horse, and all the others who had ridden south to King's Landing never to return. Micken and Shale sat together, one dripping blood and the other water. Benford Talhar and the Wild Hares filled most of the table. The Miller's wife was there as well, and Farlin. Even the wildling Theon had killed in the Wolfswood the day he, sa he had saved Bran's life. But there were others, with faces he had never known in life. Faces he had seen only in stone. The slim, sad girl who wore a crown of blue, pale blue roses and a white gown spattered with gore could only be Lyanna. Her brother Brandon stood beside her and their father Lord Rickard just behind. Along the walls, figures half seen moved through the shadows, pale shades with long, grim faces. The sight of them sent fear shivering through Theon sharp as a knife. And then the tall doors opened with a crash and a freezing gale blew down the hall. And Rob came walking out of the night, gray wind stalked beside, eyes burning, and man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Huh. Weird. Another dream that Theon and I are sharing every single night. And like Theon, I too wake up screaming. When Theon wakes up, he startles Wex so badly that the, boys goes, that the boy goes running out of the room and his guards come bursting in. Theon demands Luan be brought to him, and that occurs. He tells Luan it was a dream, and that meant nothing, right? And Luan agrees very, very solemnly. Luan leaves Theon with a sleeping potion, but Theon thinks it's probably poison, and so he pours it down the privy shaft. Theon next sends for Kyra and he proceeds to, well, basically rape her and physically abuse her before sending her away, but he still can't sleep. He spends the whole night awake. He dresses at dawn and heads outside to the battlements with the winds swirling around him as the forest changes color as the sun rises. Theon looks to his left and sees the great heart tree in the godswood. Ned Stark's tree, he thought, and Stark's wood, Stark's castles, Stark's sword, Stark's gods. This is their place, not mine. I am a Greyjoy of Pike, born to paint a kraken on my shield and sail the great salt sea. I should have gone with Asha. On their iron spikes atop the gatehouse, the heads waited. 
Theon gazed at them silently while the wind tugged on his cloak with small, ghostly hands. The miller's boys had been of an age with Bran and Rickon, alike in size and coloring, and once Reek had flayed the skin from their faces and dipped their heads in tar, it was easy to see familiar features in those misshapen lumps of rotting flesh. People were such fools. If we'd said there were ram's heads, they would have seen horns. And that is A Clash of Kings Theon 5. Um... You know, among our recent chapters we've covered here on the Nauticast, this one is pretty short, but man, it's so good. I mean, I couldn't help but quote rather than summarize it. Admittedly, with the villain Alicia's help, thank you so much, blah, 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 blah. What did you all think of this chapter? Well, great job to both of you, first of all. Bravo and brava, of course. So, you know, the key to manipulating your audience is a command of tone. George started off Theon's chapters in this book with a comedic tone. We wince and chuckle as this arrogant fool gets his comeuppance over and over and over again. In the background, however, George was also building up a different tone. One of dread at what Theon will do to overcome those setbacks. Now in Theon 5, that tone of dread takes over. There's still a hint of the comedic tone with Asha's snappy, sarcastic dialogue, But mostly this chapter feels like we're plunging through thin ice into the freezing water below. George cuts with dazzling swiftness between the dream world and the daylight to capture how fragmented Theon's mindset is right now. It's all built around a structuring absence. Theon murdering two children in between his last chapter and this one. The horror of that action broke Theon's soul and story alike, and we're just left to pick up the pieces. But I want to hear what our, what our guests thought about Theon 5. What did you think, Asha? I mean, Alicia. Not mad. Um, <laughs> so Theon's big issue is that his entire waking existence is one big fumble after another because he has no actual grasp on reality. So from the get, even before the nightmares, we see example after example of Theon rejecting reality in a way. He's got this really inflated sense of self. Um, He kind of attempts to bulldoze his way into gaining approval, respect, and even love from people. He does a lot of like playing off his mishaps as intentional, which now that I think about it is a super ironborn thing to do in general, Mm -hmm. but we'll get into that. (laughs) We'll get into that later. Um, So even in his inner monologue, he's always trying to play this off. And, you know, what was the name of the guy from Theon's? Was it like his third point of view chapter? He was squabbling with those Botley dudes about mm-hmm. plunder. Yep, yep. Todrick, yeah. yeah. And Theon was like, I'm going to give them a shot to talk about. <laughs> and he just, like, he means to, you know, shoot his arrow through the guy's cup and he ends up shooting him in the belly <laughs> instead. And like, even in Theon's inner monologue, like, you don't get a, oh shit, oh shit. He's just like, well, I meant to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, I, I'm into, like, and, and that's exactly what'll happen to you <laughs> if 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 you piss me off. So I mean, like, that's Theon. But in sleep, reality does come for Theon, and it's terrifying. But we see him repeatedly try to brush it off as only a dream. Hmm. So Asha's arrival at Winterfell not only stirs him out of the literal dream that he was having, but it's also waking him from his illusions. In waking, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so Asha is not only a foil to Theon on a narrative scale as a whole, um, shining a light on his pretty fly, fly for a white guy syndrome, <laughs> but within the chapter, she's his rude awakening from the very unrealistic dreams and aspirations that Theon holds. 
you know, um, just like the dream with the wolves, consequences that he can't outrun are catching up to him. So mocking as Asha may be toward Theon, she has his best interest at heart. She's there to essentially offer him an out where his nightmares don't have to be prophetic. They really can be just dreams. But Theon refuses this because he's a big dumb. And what's a story with prophetic dreams without a little bit of self-fulfillment? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I was thinking a little bit about, like, the structure of this chapter in terms of, like, where it occurs in the narrative. Because why put it immediately after Catelyn 7? Now, a big part of it is that this concludes the four-part narrative punch that starts with Theon 4, with Theon's declaration at the end of that chapter, that he won't be merciful now that he knows where Bran and Rickon are. Then you get Tyrion 12, where Tyrion receives news of Bran and Rickon's death. Then Catelyn 7, two weeks ago, which portrays Catelyn in the depths of grief over Bran and Rickon's death. And this chapter, which closes with the revelation that Bran and Rickon are actually not dead. That's a tight setup and payoff. Well done, George. But I, I think I love how George shows Theon losing his mind in this chapter. Watching this unfold right after Catelyn 7, where Jamie Lannister starts the long confession about Eris II and his paranoia is brilliant. The similarities are, were really striking on this reread. Theon begins to grow paranoid and starts jumping to paranoid conclusions about who's killing his men. Asha, the Winterfell small folk, that's Eris, the second Targaryen territory. Barbaric executions of men who did nothing wrong, yeah, Eris burned people. Theon throws shale down the down a well. Child murder, yes and yes. But the thing that cinched it for me was the way that George describes Kyra after Theon raped her. Here's the quote. By the time he finished, she was sobbing, her neck and breasts covered with bruises and bite marks. Now, compare this to how Jamie describes Rhaella, Queen Rhaella Targaryen, after Eris raped her after he burned Rickard Stark and had Brandon Stark strangled in a feast for crows. Queen Rhaella Targaryen had been cloaked and hooded as she climbed inside the royal wheelhouse that would take her down Aegon's high hill to the waiting, to the waiting ship, but he had heard her maids whispering after she was gone. They said the queen looked as if some beast had savaged her, clawing at her thighs and chewing on her breasts. In essence, what George does is he gives us a, sh a snapshot almost of the mind of Ares II Targaryen through someone mostly unrelated to Ares II, namely Theon's point of view. And I have to think that Ares II, as many of his Targaryen forebears had, had many troubled dreams. And that's exactly how this chapter opens. As Jeff said, we are coming into this chapter believing that Theon Greyjoy is guilty of murdering Bran and Rickon. There's a lot of setup for it, and so we are predisposed to hate his guts. But George still wants us to identify with Theon, locking us into his mindset and trapping us there. We can't detach from him entirely. So that's a challenge for the writer. How do you maintain intimacy when the reader is recoiling? By plunging us into the most intimate possible situation. A dream. More specifically, a hellish series of nightmares. George is drawing from multiple different traditions here. On one hand, there's the idea of dreams expressing the subconscious, particularly emotions that the conscious mind is determined to reject. The walls of compartmentalization and self-justification go down with the sun. Our dreams are unfettered thought, showing us who we really are. Shakespeare's use of dreams is often cited in this regard. The nightmares plaguing Lear and the Macbeth stand in for their guilty consciences. On the other hand, George is not working purely in the domain of tragedy here. This is still genre fiction, and you see that in the specific imagery. Theon's opening nightmare is evil dead, every bit as much as Macbeth. The trees and roots whipping at his face and grabbing his feet. Theon is being hunted through his dreams, which, for George's 1990s pop culture audience, 
can't help but evoke the Nightmare on Elm Street series. The twist here is that our POV is not a fresh-faced youth being chased by a child killer. Our POV is the child killer. It's as if we're stuck in Freddy Krueger's mind at, like, the end of one of the movies as his victims finally strike back. Yeah, and speaking of child killers before getting into the dream itself the other factor beyond shakespeare and horror films is post-traumatic stress disorder again i think george boomer that he is is sourcing this to the vietnam war and the ptsd that many veterans experience coming out of that conflict now given george's background as a peace protester and conscientious objector to the war i think george is channeling his complicated feelings about soldiers from that particular war and there's one I was thinking of specifically here, and I talked about him the last time we did it, the Unchapter, and it's Will- William Calley, the platoon leader from the My Lai Massacre. And I think that may have been the potential inspiration for Theon. And here, I wonder whether George is attempting to explore the psyche of that type of child-killing war criminal through Theon. Because even if Callie and Theon are monsters for their actions and murdering innocents, children at that, the trauma from that act has to reverberate through their subconscious. In 2009, I found this online, William Calley spoke out about the My Lai Massacre the first time, stating, There is not a day that goes by that I do not feel remorse for what happened that day in My Lai. I feel remorse for the Vietnamese who were killed, for their families, for the American soldiers involved, and the families. I am very sorry. Now, whether you judge Calley to be sincere or not, I kind of do, and I kind of don't for complicated reasons that I can get into at another point. Committing an act of murder against an innocent and against a child, again, sullies the soul. The thing about Theon is that I think the dreams prove that he's not especially, he's not necessarily sociopathic. He actually feels things about what he's done. And even if he represses it consciously, his soul is roiling due to his own actions. What makes violence so objectionable to us is empathy. We project ourselves into the victim. Certainly, people can and do construct more intellectual, culturally specific arguments around that, but empathy is the foundation. And so Theon's horror at what he has done is expressed by a dream in which he has become the victim. He is now the one being hunted through the woods outside Winterfell. He is begging for the mercy he denied at the end of his last chapter. He is specifically being hunted by wolves with boys' faces. The key to effective dream imagery is this kind of uncanny juxtaposition of elements. He was on the hunt for both wolves and boys in his last chapter, and now the two have merged to hunt him down. It's a reflection of how the Starks are their wolves on some level, but from the outside, as a monstrosity. The trees laugh at Theon, reflecting how he has been abandoned by the gods for his crime, the gods of the north, where he is now trapped. These dreams do reflect reality, as through a distorted mirror. They show us what happened, but not directly. This is in part because George doesn't want to give away what happened, yet it's also because Theon is repressing it. When he wakes up, he finds Reek, a.k.a. Ramsay, lit with a candle beneath his face like he's telling a campfire, you know, ghost story. It's a chilling avatar of death and doom, hunting Theon like the monsters. And that, Reek, that's where the true threat is coming from. But Theon cannot see it. He's just reduced to flailing and demanding to know what they all want from him. It's very Eris-like, as you said, Jeff, grounded in this case by how the reader experiences Theon's dragon-ish dreams directly. And so we can't forget. Right. And I think in Theon 4, the last Theon chapter, it was as if nature itself was turning traitor on Theon as he was hunting the boys through the forest. You know, the woods he had hunted with 
McFarland in all his life, the rivers he drank water from, those hills he rode over on his magnificent steed, these all became dark places haunted by the magic of the children of the forest and the reeds. Now, Theon's conscience has turned traitor on him as well, and that may be aided by the magical powers which flow through Winterfell. I think what George does with these dream sequences is have them emanate from the trauma that Theon experiences, from the trauma, of course, that he inflicted, and then have that aided by the castle Winterfell itself and the sorcerer's powers that surround it. Winterfell is a potential hinge of the world, a place where winter fell and possibly where the others were stopped the first time. Given how magic works in the series, it's like the castle itself is rejecting Theon, telling him he doesn't belong, aiding the dark visions he's having in his sleep. Plus, Theon is sleeping in Ned Stark's bed in said magical castle. We will return to that <laughs> definitely later in this chapter. So <laughs> the main reason Jeff invited me onto this particular episode of Not A Cast um, is because he really needed someone he th- that could be Wrong. relied upon to humiliate him so he could really... He could really, really get into character as Theon while reading. I'm way too nice so, to him, so I appreciate uh, the, that. <laughs> the other not as important part, very secondary. Um, the other reason is because Jeff and I do know each other pretty well, and he knows I'm personally pretty well-versed in experiencing very intense and most times, quote-unquote, prophetic dreams. Mm. Um, so whether my dreams are trying to communicate an important truth to me about the here and now, or communicating to me about what's going to come to pass, my dreams are generally right on the nose. And I mean, it creeps people out off times, but (laughs) I, I come from a family where pretty much all of us have those kind of dreams. So it's always been very real and factual to me, but I can't appreciate how other people they need time. They need time. Um, so to share a bit about my own experiences with navigating through trauma within bad dreams, um, especially with guilt involved, um, I had not too long ago lost someone that was very dear to me. And it really, really plagued my dreams hmm. quite a bit. And um, the nightmares that I was having were very visceral. I remember talking to my therapist about it. My therapist would be like, damn, (laughs) you know, um, I I would have, I remember one particular dream. I remember I was in the woods in a graveyard or something, and there was even fog and being on my hands and knees and digging in this grave with my bare hands, you know, it just, that the, the trauma that can leak their way into your dreams is just, it kind of seizes hold of your whole body even after mm-hmm. you wake up. And that's when you haven't engaged in child murdering per se, <laughs> you know? So when we have intense dreams like that, or even nightmares of something that has already happened to us, it's a clear indicator that we haven't yet let go of something and there's something left resolved like unresolved because I remember that same person that I lost. I remember telling you about this, Jeff. Um, I, I would have nightmare after nightmare about losing them. And I remember one particular dream I had um, was a really, really good dream where they showed up. And at the end of the dream, I kind of realized that I was dreaming. 
And I was like, no, 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 no. And I was able to kind of like stay in the dream, but not control things. And I remember them telling me like, it's okay. Like, it's okay to let me go. Like, it's okay to let go. And I remember waking up and I was just not okay for some weeks, but I was able to start actually healing after that. And I actually haven't dreamed of that person since that dream. And it's one of those things where like the mind, whether you want to look at it from a psychological point of view, if you want to look at it from, you know, a metaphysical point of view, like the mind does know how to protect itself, but at the same time, like you're not necessarily protected from your dreams because it's all subconscious. Like, think about it. Like, when we go to bed at night, we're not consciously controlling that anymore. And most of us get what I like to call subconscious data dump, hmm. where it just kind of like, okay, everything you have in process today, here it is. Even if it's the most whimsical shit, like, you know, you could be fighting with samurai swords with a silhouette of like a rug man not that i've had that dream but I mean, like there's just a lot to unpack a lot of the time so getting back to theon um as much as i believe that this dream was something conscious like like it was something subconscious with him and it was his conscience gnawing at him as much as like i do want to like really give my hats off to um george about realistically portraying what it's like for somebody to really process all that trauma even though it's his own damn fucking fault <laughs> um <laughs> I, I i do also kind of think that it did have a lot of prophetic tones to it because that is oft how actual clairvoyant dreams work but we'll get into that later i i just want to talk about the subconscious <laughs> parts of dreams so um I, I am going to kind of walk you through my whole thought process and thinking that that first dream that he had was something a bit on the prophetic end. Um, so, I mean, if I were to talk about the wolves, I'm sorry, but like, I don't have anything astounding for you to me. It's just like, I think I'd be reaching, <laughs> you know, um, I just want to focus on the, like Theon and the branches of the tree that were tearing at him while he was trying to get away. So to preface this, um, growing up, oddly, I had my own wolf dreams, if you will. Like they were literally wolves that would show up in my dreams. Like I cannot remember a time where I would dream and the wolves weren't there. You know, and when I was a little girl, it was the most terrifying thing. And it was so fucking unfair because I would already be having a bad dream. And it's like, if I wanted to write horror, I could probably base it off a lot of my wolf dreams as a kid. You know, like things would be going to shit in my dream. And without fail, every single time I would turn and there would be like at least one wolf, usually multiple wolves. And it would just terrify me. And I would just wake up and have these really like bodily visceral reactions and um something kind of started to change throughout my life it wasn't until god i was in like my early 20s and i was talking to my girl and she's a bit of a woo-woo hippie and i was like yeah i'm always having these wolf dreams and she'd know me well enough by that point that i would dreams 
like she could see that I would dream certain things and then they would come to pass. So she was kind of like, whoa. So she's like, we really got to get to the bottom of these wolf dreams. And then she was the first person to ask me like, you know, when the wolf shows up, what is it doing to you? And I'm like, it's there. And she's like, yeah, but what is it doing to you? I was like, I don't know. I take off before I have the chance to find it. Like, what the fuck do you do when a wolf shows up? You know, and she's like, but is it actually trying to hurt you or you take off before you can actually kind of find out? I'm like, by Jove, you're right. And then somehow it kind of evolved from the wolves being like my biggest terror in these dreams to I kind of actually figured out the wolves were there for good. If ever I was having a bad dream and they showed up, it wasn't to like, twist the knife it was to protect me within these dreams so it kind of they went from my greatest terror to my greatest aid in these dreams so i don't know if you boys remember scooby-doo on zombie island (laughs) from like 1998 or something like that it's a wonderful movie um so (laughs) scooby-doo as you often know a lot of the times the monsters aren't real they're just ambitious dudes in masks <laughs> the caretaker who could have seen yeah. that coming <laughs> you know but zombie usually scooby-doo movies had real monsters in it and um for scooby-doo on zombie island it was the zombies and they spend most of this movie dodging the zombies and it's got some music that still slaps in it you know yeah. and then in a like in a twist of events it turns out the zombies weren't actually trying to hurt them. The zombies were trying to help them and get them to leave the island because plot twist, the people that were supposedly trying to help them in the beginning were the real villains. They were the real monsters and they were like all the zombies were basically the like victims of the real, of the real villain, which is really reminiscent of Theon and Reek slash Ramsey. But um, getting back to Theon's dream, I I promise this is going to have a point. So uh, during one of Theon's dance chapters, when he runs into this infamous hooded man, you know, this mystery man who is definitely Robert Glover, is kind of taken aback and asks Theon, like, how are you still breathing? You know, or something to that, which Theon replies, the gods are not done with me. He says other things, but he, Hmm. I mean, we're going to focus on when he says the gods are not done with me. So what if? Hear me out. What if, though the tree branches are terrifying to Theon and they serve a subconscious purpose, what if they also represent the weirwoods and the old gods? And what if they're actually clinging to him because they're calling to him and they're not done with him yet? So Theon has a good number of passages of great significance that take place in front of a heart tree. Um, or a weirwood tree. I suppose some of the weirwood trees are heart trees. It don't matter. Uh, so these are moments that more than once he swears that the tree is trying to whisper to him. Bran. Uh, there's even a moment in A Dance with Dragons and A Ghost of Winterfell where he prays to the old gods in front of the weirwood and he says, please, he fell to his knees. A sword, that's all I ask. Let me die as Theon, not as Reek. Tears trickled down his cheeks, impossibly warm. Um, I don't think this is actually prophetic, but I did think it was kind of a cool um, callback to the dream where the branches were raking across his cheeks. Okay, so prior to that, um, prior to that, the dance chapter, the turn cloak says, please, he murmured through his broken teeth. I never meant the words caught in his throat. Save me. He finally managed. Give me what? Strength? Courage? Mercy? 
And both of those passages to me heavily echo Theon's dreams as he's crying out mercy, mercy over again. Hmm. So I'm definitely not the first person to take note that Theon has an obvious connection and pull to the Weirwoods, which I know is just Bran trying to reach out to him. But what um, what Bran is trying to accomplish, I don't really know. I think anybody who actually knows who I am and what I'm about knows <laughs> that I'm a really lazy theory crafter. Like <laughs> I just take note of patterns and correlations. So Please don't ask me to try to make the dots connect. Um, I'm just going to throw the dots in front of you and declare like, these are dots because I'm annoying. Um, so returning to shape. those. <laughs> so returning to those dots um, in Theon's T-Wow sample chapter, we see yet another instance of fate just kind of pulling Theon toward the weirwood. And that's when Asha goes to Stannis and, her, I mean, her primary objective is to try to ransom Theon, which I think she knows Stannis is going to be like, no fucking way. So mm. I don't know what she's doing exactly, but if you remember, of course, YouTube remember, but if you remember, she did bid to Stannis, like, you know what, if you're going to execute him, don't burn him, execute him in front of, or execute him in front of the Weirwood tree. And that's all I have to say on that, but. You know, I've, I've never really engaged much with, with my own dream life. You know, I just kind of enjoy what passes through me in a very passive way. But it strikes me that, you know, yeah, that, that Theon is not only just experiencing nightmares, but he's he's refusing to engage with them in the way that you were talking about, to really uh, take control over and think about and even be able to, like you were saying, to be able to experience fear within a dream and be okay with that and let it go and be aware of the transience. And that, that really, that, that struck me. And that's something that Theon just can't do. He just like, and that's that. I think that dovetails with how in the real world he just can't let go of control and can't let anyone else, you know, be the bigger person in the room. He's just not set up to handle his own actions at a at a conscious or subconscious level. Agreed. And so as it turns out, Theon has been having a, all kinds of nightmares lately. They keep getting worse. He thinks it's as if they're about to step into reality. Theon hated what he did at the Stony Shore back in Theon Three, so he had to come up with a bunch of increasingly absurd justifications for it. The same pattern applies here, but this time, Theon is barely in control of his own mind. What he has done is so hideous that he is drowning in it psychologically, just as Catelyn was on the emotional flip side of this atrocity. The dreams feel like jarring edits, one reality brutally superimposing itself upon another. It's blunt force trauma, all of it coming from within Theon. All his dreams are about death. His first dream seemed poised to conclude with his own death. The other two dreams he describes to us at the start of the chapter are about his culpability in the deaths of others. In the first dream, he's back at the mill, dressing the dead boys. This is a major clue that the boys he killed weren't the Starks. Why else would he have to redress them? But the first-time reader is unlikely to pick up on that, because this part of the chapter is it's not about analysis. It's a blast of pure emotion, dread, horror, or hatred of Theon. The truth is hidden from us, as Theon keeps it hidden from himself. The compartmentalization that will transform him into Reek has begun. Regardless of their identity, these are dead children, and Theon killed them. The realization settles on him as rigor mortis settles on them. Their limbs grow stiff, seeming to resist him. They're resisting the clothes, and the lie supported by the clothes. Even in death, they defy him. Theon tells the bodies that 
he didn't want this. They left him no choice. It's so telling and haunting that Theon doesn't specify who they refers to. Does he mean Bran and Rickon, forcing his hand by escaping? Or does he mean his family, who won't accept him as he is? Does he mean the Ironborn as a whole, or the Northmen as a whole, or the Starks? It could be any of them. In truth, it's all of them. Theon has never had a true home, and so, no true family, no true people, and no true identity. That has led him here. Theon, of course, owns the individual decision to murder these children. But as with Catelyn versus Jaime, George is exposing problems that run deeper than individuals. Even if Theon was, you know, a more upright, <laughs> admirable fellow from the get-go, he would still have no place to be, and he would probably still compromise himself in some way trying to find one. These are the wages of exile. They chafe like a noose around the neck, as Theon will tell Sir Roderick in his next and final chapter in the book. Theon believes he had to do this, but he is not so detached from humanity as to not recognize the visceral awfulness of murdering children. So he begs the bodies to forgive him. Understand the corner into which I have been backed. They give him nothing, only getting colder and heavier. Theon's justifications fail him, as they will later with Asha. There is no redemption. A shaft of light does not break the firmament to gather the children to its holy bosom and absolve Theon for his sins. They're just corpses, as he will be one day. Men are meat, as his uncle Euron says. This is what it feels like to be left alone with the consequences of your actions after a lifetime of always being able to find an escape route. Theon is forced to take life and death seriously. Too late. Interestingly, a voice from beyond will reach out to Theon in A Dance with Dragons, namely the real Bran. But no such deliverance awaits him here. Yeah, and I think like in A Dance with Dragons and in Martin's lapsed Catholic parlance, Theon has paid for his sins. He's, as, as you were talking about Alicia, that, that scene where he's sobbing in front of the tree and saying how sorry he is. And now he's seeking a redemptive death as Theon Greyjoy of Pike. But here in Theon 5, he's only recognizing how awful it is to have murdered children. But he's still in the spot where he's still trying to rationalize his awful behavior, justify it even. Does that remind anyone else of Jamie from the last Catelyn chapter and his rationalizations for why he pushed Bran from the window? Remember George and that statement that Jamie was motivated by saving Cersei and his own children from Robert? That's not really the case with Theon here. He killed kids not to save someone else's life, not even his own life. It was to spare him embarrassment from Ashen on the other Ironborn that he is ostensibly in command of. Theon's eggshell-thin egg masculinity is cracked, and now he's murdering children as a result. This is bad news for Theon and everyone else in Winterfell. And uh, the night before that, Theon dreamed of the miller's wife. We're being told these dreams out of order to match Theon's scrambled, unstuck mindset. Laid out uh, chronologically, these dreams bring Theon closer and closer to what he has done. It started a couple days ago with the death of the miller's wife, proceeded to the dream of the death of the boys, and will now inexorably lead to his own doom as we see with the dream in which he's being hunted. As with Theon three, starting with Benfred Tallhart spitting in Theon's face, we start here with Theon's ongoing downfall and work backward to fill in the rest. There are blank spots in Theon's recollections. Again, these exist on a plot level to conceal the twist about Bran and Rickon until the end of the chapter, but on a character level, these gaps reveal more about Theon's nature. For example, Theon doesn't remember the name of the miller's wife. 
All he remembers is the sex. The stretch marks on her belly, the claw marks on his back, the literal marks of lived experience. All of that is transformed for him now. Theon is realizing, if only at a subconscious level, that he does not treat women like full humans, which means someone could treat him that way. So the woman's vagina has teeth in his dream, and she castrates him. Your stereotypical Freudian therapist would have a field day with this. <laughs> the meaning of this, uh, meaning of this dream is pretty clear. Theon defines himself by sex, in part because he didn't have any other identity readily available to him. The memory of his sexual conquests and the anticipation of further conquests to come is basically what gets him through the day. Now his sexual prowess has failed him because a memory of getting laid has been tainted by the fact that he had the woman in question killed in front of him. He is unmoored more than ever. So the key to his self-image, his penis, is ripped away in vengeance by the woman he killed, the woman who once bolstered that sexual self-image. And Theon still denies all responsibility for it. He passes it off to Gelmar, who struck the blow. Even though Theon was the one who led them there, and it was to Theon, she cried for mercy. Theon also reveals that Gelmar is dead here, before elaborating on it later. This whole chapter is an unveiling and unraveling of Theon's constructed identities. His dreams reveal what's waiting. Shame, the ego death. And Ramsay will make this castration fear literal in A Dance with Dragons. Yeah, and like throughout A Clash of Kings, Martin has done a subtle job of paralleling Theon Greyjoy with Ned Stark, the Lords of Winterfell, so to speak. The dreams and troubled sleep of Theon is another spot where George is showing Theon is having a similar mentality as Ned Stark. Remember Ned from back in Eddard 2 is the second chapter in A Game of Thrones, his second chapter in A Game of Thrones? Ned thinks troubled sleep was no stranger to him. He had lived his lies for 14 years, yet they still haunted him at night. The lies that Ned was living with were likely related to R plus L equals J, protecting his sister's son, John, then lying to Catelyn and Robert about fathering a bastard. But Ned's lies were intended to save an innocent life. The troubled sleep he experienced, the fever dream he had at the Tower of Joy, were the result of Ned's traumas around saving children. Theon's lies that lead in part to his troubled sleep were his lies to save his own ass from embarrassment. I don't remember which episode it was. I mean, it might have been one of our Game of Thrones episodes, season eight. But you made a really great point that heroism in this series is about putting your own safety and reputation on the line in order to save someone else's life. Theon is acting opposite this, throwing the corpses of innocent children, his former booty call ahead of him to save his own ass. And again, it's not even his own... It's not even to save his own life. His own life is even more endangered by killing these kids and claiming they were Bran and Rickon. The entire North is ready to rise up and just roll over Theon and kill him as quickly as possible as we'll find out in the next Theon chapter. It's really only to save his rep so that no one's going to laugh at him and think that he's a stumblefuck fail prince that he knows that he is. Ned sacrificed his reputation, his honor to save John. The trend line of Theon, as transgressive Ned Stark, continues on to Theon 5 and on to Theon 6 and... Hopefully it gets better by the by the time we get to a dance of dragons. Yeah, I love the the comparison to a to, to transgressive Ned Stark. It's like everything has gotten has gotten corrupted and twisted and just kind of pathetic since the last Lord of Winterfell wasn't was it was in town. And uh, you know there are there are just uh, this was kind of a difficult chapter to to write about as you as you folks might kind of be gathering. <laughs> there are, there are, there are so many isolated passages and like just mini scenes in this chapter. We had to keep breaking it up to smaller subheadings in the doc for this episode. And as I said about John 7 when we covered that chapter with Stefan, 
Theon 5 is the middle child. It's second out of Theon's three Winterfell chapters. And so, like John 7, Theon 5 is not as cleanly structured as the chapters before and after it. Theon 4 was all about the hunt for Bran and Rickon. Theon 6 is all about his downfall. Theon 5 jumps all over the place in order to connect the dots. It also captures how Theon feels overwhelmed by his self-created problems, outnumbered by them as they keep piling up. Not only did he murder children alongside his fellow Ironborn, but those fellow Ironborn have since turned up dead. George runs down the dead one by one as he ran down Theon's dreams. Gilmar the Grim fell down some steps. Agar's throat was slit. Gynir Rednose tried to guard himself with a dog but was thrown down a well. It feels as if Winterfell is cursed, the very stones rebelling against the deaths of the Stark boys. There's a clear parallel to Arya carrying out revenge killings in Harrenhal in this book. Even the same number of deaths, three. And that that uneasy kind of ghost story mood ends up carrying over to the Ironborn themselves. They start to feel it. As Black Lauren says, the Ironborn are into open bloodshed, not all this uncertainty. Ironically, Black Lauren has just spelled out why the Ironborn conquest of the North was never going to work. All the Ironborn care about is the act of reaving itself. Actually ruling by definition, kind of requires dwelling amongst your enemies, at least until you put in some effort to make them something other than enemies. (laughs) Theon has lived for years with that same tension, never knowing whether you're at home or in enemy territory. He had to face it all alone. It has rubbed him raw. It has left him determined to carve out a space of his own with fire and blood, no matter the cost to innocence, his own men, or even himself. I am the Prince of Winterfell, he shouts at Black Lauren. I will not abandon my prize. It's the delusion of the Ironborn campaign, writ small. And in order to hold on to his prize, Theon has not only murdered children, he has murdered his own men, the ones who killed the kids for him. Like with Todrick, as, we, as Alicia was talking about earlier, he's made the same mistake. In a frenzied moment, he slips and reveals to the reader that he had those three men killed because they can't keep secrets. The first time reader doesn't yet know what that secret is, but the point is Theon's moral descent. Violence begets violence. One murder justifies the next. Theon had to hunt and kill those boys to keep Winterfell, and so then he had to kill his own men lest they reveal the truth, and then he had to execute Farlin as a scapegoat for the murders. Blood calls for blood, and it never ends. It, you're right. And I think like that's just a, a trend line that's going to continue for this chapter. And I think here, it, it only took me about a dozen rereads of this chapter before writing this part of the, the, synop- the synopsis, the death portion, to realize that the murders of these Ironborn bros who the murder was, was actually Reek slash Ramsey. In my defense, it's very, very subtle, as Theon thinks later in this chapter. I should have had Reek killed after he did the others, he reflected. But the notion made him nervous. And that's seemingly, it's a very, seemingly very easy for my eyes to gloss over and apparently for everyone else's eyes. So yes, Reek is the murderer here. Anyways, I think this detail is interesting because it was a, it's a signal that Theon is now shedding his Ironborn identity, the one he had been really, really trying to live up to before. As we talked about back in Theon 3, he really hates all the guys that he's nominally in command of and thinks they're trash, which is not wrong. They did just commit two murders of two kids, or three murders, two kids and, and their mom. And recall there that Theon, as we've been talking about, Theon accidentally put an arrow through Todrick and then claimed he's so totally meant to do that. Here we've got Theon engaging in some Poe's law, having a Northman murder his own men to rid him of any loose lips on purpose. Real life begins to emulate the parody that was Theon 3. 
We are on the descent with Theon, turn cloaking, killing a former acquaintance, murdering Micken, hunting Bran Rickon, murdering the Miller's boys and the Miller's wife, and now turning against his own men, his father's people. Coming off our five-part analysis of the Winds of Winter of the Forsaken, you can't help but see how Theon's arc in Clash is the forebearer to Nuncle Euron doing much the same before and after he returns to the Iron Islands. Murder, kinsling, as we'll talk about at the end of this episode, rape, and then using the Ironborn to do his bidding before having them all killed in that battle of blood, which is set to occur in Aaron Greyjoy's second chapter in the Winds of Winter. The difference, of course, is that Euron Greyjoy is horrifyingly at peace, horrifyingly at peace with being a monster. Theon is anything but at peace in this chapter. That's the truth. Every step of the way, Theon is being motivated by pride and shame. And in truth, those are not opposites. Humility is the opposite of pride. Shame is the same emotion as pride, with a tone flipped. It's all about me, my precious self-image, whether it's good or bad. Theon executed Farland to try and look good. It's an official response to the murders. It establishes Theon as the source of authority, judge, jury, and executioner. But as he admits, even that went wrong for him. Before he could have someone else execute Farlin, Farlin reminded everyone that Ned Stark always did his own executions. That was the sober, mature standard set by the last Lord of Winterfell, who was respected by everyone unlike Theon. So Theon tried to live up to that standard, but he doesn't understand it, so naturally he can't do it right. He needs three tries to behead Farlin for the crime he committed. It's a total failure of leadership on every level. Theon falls short of both Ned's admirable standards of masculinity and his own frankly ridiculous ones. Afterward, Theon throws up because he actually knew Farlin. They'd been friends, or at least as close to friends as Theon ever had, like Benfred Tallhart. Theon was always an outsider in Winterfell, but it was the closest to home and family he had, and now he has given it all up. Ned, Ned had never needed more than a single blow to kill a man. But now Ned has himself been beheaded, and Theon is left to try and fail to take his place. Yeah, and fail is the, is the optimal word here. Fail, the fail prince. I mean, there's an intense amount of play acting in Theon's rule of Winterfell, where he tries to play both Ned Stark and Balin Greyjoy and fails at both magnificently. As we talked about, the play acting represents a failure in Theon to identify what made these men popular, popular with their own people. A major part of Ned's appeal was that that a major part of Ned Stark's appeal was that he ensured the loyalty of the Winterfell small folk in extending his own loyalty and care to them and brought them to table, hearing their concerns, talking to them about what was motivating them and their issues that they were having in the Winterfell Forge, in the kitchens, you know, raising the children and being a generally benevolent lord to them. Bailing Greyjoy's appeal was obviously different, but it was kind of appeal to a feeling of racialized ironborn supremacy and invoking the radical individualism of rape, reaving, raping, and paying the iron price, price to take what they wanted. But Theon can only see the exteriors of these men, the way he saw them as cold and stern like Ned and brutal and violent like Bailing Greyjoy. Both of those character aspects existed in both of these guys, but they were only a part of, they were only part of the appeal and only a small part of what actually made their made their uh, interior makeup. Theon attempts to emulate these two approaches to rule, but he fails to see Ned's warm heart and care for his small folk as we were talking about back in Theon 4, and he fails to reward his ironborn with the plunder that they desire. Moreover, in the case of trying to be Balin Greyjoy, he ends up committing shocking murders, which even sickened Ash, Asha Greyjoy, no shrinking violet when it comes to violence and ironborn culture. And Theon has failed to be loyal to people who showed loyalty to him the way that Ned did. Not only was Ned a not only was Farland a near friend of Theon's, but he was also fulfilling Theon's orders from the prior chapter, with him bringing his hounds to hunt for Bran, Rickon, Mira, Jojen, Hodor, Osha, and the Direwolves. 
Theon had ensured Farland's loyalty by threatening his daughter Paula's life, and now Farland has ended up being murdered by Theon. Well, through through Reek. Now, I don't watch that Simpsons show that Emmett you're a big fan of, but I do know that meme. Dig up, stupid. That's Theon trying to dig up to be Balin and Ned and only sinking farther and farther down. Thankfully, we don't have to be the only ones to point this out to Theon outside of the, the universe. An in-universe character arrives to show Theon how far he's fallen. Again, what Theon fears most is humiliation. He murdered children to avoid being laughed at. It's pretty much like the classic masculine character flaw. Not that women don't experience pride and humiliation, just look at Cersei. But I think there is something specifically gendered about the way Theon's need to belong somewhere, anywhere, gets wrapped up in his frustrated sex drive. We saw that on the Iron Islands with Asha's introduction. Theon got horny for a sexy lady, then was left holding his dick when said sexy lady not only turned out to be his sister, but also turns out to be the true heir to Pike. It's one giant throbbing ball of shame in Theon's brain. I have to be the right kind of man, or I am worthless, and the right kind of man fucks. The right kind of man takes castles. But does the right kind of man kill kids? Asher returns to the narrative now to bring all this anger and shame to the forefront. Just as the dreams pride Theon apart in the night, Asha tears his fragile ego to pieces in the daylight, in both personal and political terms. Theon knows that Asha performs ironborn masculinity better than he does, yet he cannot bring himself to learn from her, partially because of her gender and partially because he can't admit to any vulnerabilities. So instead, Asha just becomes one of the many voices in Theon's head telling him he sucks. When he wakes up from his dream at the start of the chapter, he thinks that he needs to scrub up so he isn't all stinky and disheveled for her. He dresses in finery for her at first, only to remember the old way standards of dress that already got him in trouble with their father. Theon can't play the role of Ironborn Conqueror any more than he can play the role of Ned Stark 2.0. He doesn't know his lines, he's wearing the wrong costume, and he's constantly being upstaged. Theon resents Asha for usurping his rightful position, but as his actual position gets worse and worse, he's also beginning to realize that she is his only way out and worries she might abandon him. Again, that's that fear at the start of the chapter that there will be no mercy for him. So Theon takes a blade along to meet Asha, thinking he knows how to use it, <laughs> even though he's asking Asha to save him from an untenable situation. It's just like how Catelyn is both relying on Tyrion to send back her daughters and wishing that he was dead. Last, Theon dons his crown. Let's pause to make fun of Theon's <laughs> crown. It's the single ugliest crown we see in the series. This is not the sort of crown that convinces people you are the rightful center of the action. It's the sort that makes you look like a pompous fool. It's a perfect symbol of how Theon is trying and failing to live up to his projected image of power. He's taken the castle, he's declared himself prince, but he doesn't look anything like his fantasy self. On a more literal level, the, reasons, the reason Theon's crown looks this way is because he had Micken, the smith, killed for insulting his pride. The Ironborn carelessly squandered a vital resource, and as a result, Theon can't get a decent crown made. You couldn't ask for a better summary of the short-sighted, self-destructive tendencies of the old way. So when Theon strides into the Great Hall to cement his presence as Prince of Winterfell, he looks instead like the fuck-up he is. <laughs> All the doubt and fear he's trying to keep beneath the surface is externalized by his fool's crown. Yeah, and, and 
it's such a it is fun to make fun of Theon's crown because I mean he's basically reaping what he sowed and killing all these people. I mean, was, as we talked about before, you were talking about in the last Theon chapter how he threw shale down a well, poisoning the well when the castle was just about to come under siege. Now he's killed the the smith who could make him an actual crown, and he's got like some ugly ass crown. And it's like the way it's described, like you can see like the fine metals that are going into it, but it's just misshapen and ugly. And speaking of of crowns and kings and things like things of that nature, earlier I talked about how George paralleled Theon's behavior from this chapter with what he learned with what we learn about Eris the second in the last Catelyn chapter but I think like here as Asha and Theon are about to converse George changes course and draws Theon's weak defense of child murdering through Robert Baratheon of all people remember at the end of Robert's rebellion Tywin Lannister laid the bodies of Aegon and Rhaenys at Robert's feet and Ned declared it murder and Robert didn't see children only dragon spawn Theon doesn't see Bran and Rickon either. It's not them, after all, but more than that, it's what the boys represent. They represent a threat to Theon that he could expose. He could be exposed as a failure that Asha is going to see very clearly in the next in the next scene, and not as the real Ironborn Reaver or even the Prince of Winterfell. But of course, Theon didn't actually present the actual heads of Bran and Rickon, anyways. And you know, uh, in that an interesting interesting parallel just kind of like popped up as I was working late in, late into the night last night in young Griff's telling of the story of what happened with his with Aegon it wasn't actually baby Aegon's body there either it was instead a piss water prince that Varys had purchased in order to uh, fulfill the in order to shepherd Aegon away of course that story is likely bullshit as we'll cover when we get to a dance with dragons but I think the parallel is there and the forebears there here in a dance with dragon in a clash of kings theon five yeah, I think that that's a great comparison to to Young Grift and the, the the kind of just like the, the 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 swapping of the faces and the constant the constant need to like kind of ex- externalize your your identity crisis onto other people. Like I don't really know who I am. I don't want to be this kind of person, so other people have to pay the price for that. So hmm. I don't have to deal with my psychological torment. I definitely think that's something strong in common. And uh, so then we get to get to Asha's uh, reintroduction, her, her arrival in this chapter. And right away, George communicates that Asha will not be fitting into Theon's narrative. Instead, as with her introduction, she has her own. Theon sees immediately that she has, she has ignored his command to bring enough men to hold Winterfell. She only showed up with 20. Theon has no real authority to give commands to her, after all. It's one of the more fragile shadows on a wall in A Clash of Kings. And Asha just ignores it. After all, she lives and breathes authority, at least as far as her men are concerned, and she definitely puts on a better show than Theon. She is lounging in the high seat of the Starks, taking his place just as she did on Pike. She rips into her food as her men talk her up. Like Robert in his Rebellion-era prime, she is pure charisma, everything Theon isn't. Asha immediately calls attention to the gap between Theon's idealized image of himself and the increasingly desperate reality. <laughs> ah, here is the Prince of Winterfell, or is he the Prince of Fools? Asha doesn't feel the need to maintain public decorum. She mocks Theon with ease because he has no reputation to fear in either domain now. And he has done this to himself. He blames Asha in his thoughts as usual, but Theon is responsible for how toxic his reputation has become. I think, like, note, too, like, how Asha is casually lounging on Ned Stark's high chair, the one that Theon sat upon in judgment back in Bran's last chapter, and his men couldn't give less of a shit about it. 
Asha is actively dishonoring Theon, and his men seem happy to, seemingly seem happy to have a real leader in their midst. Everyone is just chowing down on food, yelling and laughing and swapping stories. Hell, you can even make the argument that they're practically feasting Asha's arrival. And I'm reminded of that feast scene back on Pike from Theon's second chapter in A Clash of Kings, when Asha was seated at Balin's right hand and Theon just cannot handle it. Theon took the empty seat beside Asha, leaning close, he hissed in her ear, You're in my place. She turned to him with all innocent eyes. Brother, surely you're mistaken. Your place is at Winterfell. And now it's happening again. Asha is sitting in Theon's place of honor, his literal seat of Winterfell. And no one except for Theon Greyjoy gives a shit about that. He cannot deal with it. So instead, he just insists that Asha is jealous of his accomplishments. He even calls her a maid, which... You know, she very much is not. <laughs> but that just reveals even more how Asha has disarmed him sexually. In order to reassert himself as the manliest man around, Theon points out that Asha needed a thousand men and a month to take Deepwood Mott. Imagine. Whereas he took Winterfell with 50 men in a night. This is not technically inaccurate, but as Asha is about to outline, Theon has completely ignored the larger strategic picture. Before Asha even gets there, however, she dismantles Theon on his own terms. Oh, you're a great warrior? Do great warriors butcher children? Theon's defense mechanisms briefly falter. He is forced to flashback once again, this time to the moment he revealed the bodies to everyone. He recalls old Nan's devastated face, Farlan's incoherent rage, Lewin's stone-faced plea to bury the boys with some honor in the crypts. Theon is now despised by the only people who know him. How did it come to this, he asks himself. Because of the man you were trying to be, as Lewin says in the show. Theon burned their bodies like he burned his old life, retrieving only the melted remains of a wolf-head brooch, all that's left of his time here. He keeps it still, a cross to bear, a totem of sacrifice. But that's all on the inside. On the surface, he feels the need to justify himself to Asha. Theon insists that Bran and Rickon are responsible for what happened. Again, they left me no choice. They brought their fates on themselves, he says. Asha shoots back, so do we all, brother. Hmm. Another perfect summary of Theon's arc in A Clash of Kings. He can blame her all he wants, but the truth is that in his futile efforts to find peace, Theon has sealed his own doom. He still doesn't have her leadership skills, after all. Asha stands and leads him out of the room to discuss the war privately. Theon realizes too late that this was his move to make. He should have summoned her to him. Once more, Asha looks better in the public arena, and she continues to outclass him with her military knowledge when they're in private. Theon knows that Dagmar Cleftjaw lost the fight against Sir Roderick at Torrens Square, but Asha knows more details, which only makes Theon angrier. Asha knows the outcome of his own master plan better than he does, because she has a stronger handle on intelligence like everything else. That's not to say Asha is without her own blind spots. Like Black Lauren earlier, she keeps inadvertently giving away how stupid their dad's master plan is. She says that Dagmar was doomed to lose against Sir Roderick because Ironborn can't withstand a cavalry charge. She says this as if it makes Theon, and only Theon, quite the fool, ignoring the obvious comeback. How were the Ironborn ever supposed to conquer the North in that case? White Harbor has a lot of knights on call, and the Dustin Ricewell territory is known for breeding horses. What's the plan to deal with them? 
There is no plan, even from the more forward-thinking Ironborn like Asha, because their ubermensch ideology tells them they don't need a plan. <laughs> their innate racial superiority, ordained by the one true god beneath the waves, will inherently assert itself in any martial contest with the weak-ass Greenlanders, or so they think. Theon and Asha are smart enough to poke different holes in this worldview, but they can't step outside Plato's cave to see the whole thing. Asha recognizes that ironborn victory rests on naval power. Krakens rise from the sea, as she says. Deepwood Mott may be a wooden pisspot, but it can be easily remanned and resupplied from the sea. That's how we fight. Winterfell makes no sense as an ironborn base of operations because it's too far inland. Supply lines will be stretched thin and will be easily disrupted. Theon didn't think about that because his education in ironborn ways was suddenly and permanently interrupted, whereas Asha learned it all. Theon did, however, get a half-education in northern ways, just enough to realize the flaws in Asha's approach. Winterfell is the heart of the land. If you're going to break apart and remake northern politics for the long term, you need to cut the head off the snake. You need to take down the Starks. Otherwise, once the Northmen recover from the initial shock of the invasion, they will simply rally around the Stark in Winterfell and drive out the Ironborn with their superior numbers and supplies and strategies. Dividing and conquering is the only chance the Ironborn have. It's what worked for them in the Riverlands, after all, and that is only possible in the North if you take Winterfell and rip apart that ironclad direwolf hashtag brand. <laughs> so both Asha and Theon have half a point to make, but they've been operating on their own, and so have wound up making both kinds of mistakes. But who is ultimately to blame beyond Asha and Theon, but that the big dumbass on a sea stone chair, Balon Greyjoy? And because I haven't had a good chance to shit on Balon Greyjoy's plan to invade the North in a few weeks, I guess, I thought this might be an opportunity to do it yet again. Because there is a place, as you were referencing before, Emmett, where the Ironborn succeeded at conquering a region of Westeros historically, namely House Hor and the conquest of the Riverlands just prior to Aegon's arrival. There, the Ironborn launched an invasion of the Riverlands, ruled weakly by the Storm Kings, and then used shock tactics and mobility to attack at multiple points and worked to secure disloyal Riverlords, namely the Brackens, the heel house of the Riverlands, to defeat the loyalists of the Storm Kings. This was... Historically similar to how the Danes were able to secure large parts of England and Ireland in the 9th century CE, Balin Greyjoy and his underlings have not followed the example of their ironborn forebears and instead have opted for a war of attrition. This war of attrition against the Northmen, of course, being against a massive piece of land without easy access to the sea. The only thing that has kept Balin's conquest alive for so long is that Robb Stark's army and most of the Nor most of the most of the best men of the North are away in the Riverlands fighting against the Lannisters. But the Ironborn took the Stony Shore, Moat Kaelin, Deepwood Mott, and now Theon has Winterfell. There's a there's a commonality among all the Ironborn subordinate commanders of Balon. They all have taken their castles and done fucking nothing. Fuck all. Asha has not moved to secure Sea Dragon Point or to move her ships against Bear Island in the Mormonts. Victarion has firmly planted his large ass at Moat Kaelin and done nothing to threaten Barrowton or White Harbor. Theon, as you were saying, Emmett, back in Theon 4, has simply just sat at Winterfell for, for weeks. The entire conquest at this point, the, the entire conquest is at this point is at a point of extreme inertia, and this has allowed every other player in the North to gather up their strength to prepare a counterattack. 
The first blow fell at Torrin Square, and now Dagmar Clefjall is running back to the stony shore after after Roger Cassell defeated him. Meanwhile, the Umbers are gathering their men at the Last River in advance of marching on Winterfell, and even the Manderleys have stopped killing Dreadfort men in and around Hornwood just long enough to maneuver their knights up the White Knife in preparation for marching down on Winterfell. And the Ironborn, what is their great plan to defend against the oncoming onslaught that's coming for them? Nothing! They're doing nothing! They're just sitting there, and they will continue sitting there until doing nothing until, oh my god, the Northmen are attacking, and that's as late as a dance with dragons. Asha and Victarion only depart Deepwood Mott and Moat Kaelin to stake their claim at the King's Moon in a feast for crows. Once that fails, Asha returns to Deepwood and does, again, nothing until Stannis is at the gates. Meanwhile, Victarion becomes a lieutenant of Euron Greyjoy, temporarily, and in the Conquest of the Shield Islands, we actually see how a possible successful invasion of Conquest of a major region would work in contemporary Westeros. Euron doesn't just take the Shield Islands and sit around for a bit. He sends Victarion east to Marine, and he keeps raiding the coast, striking up towards Old Town, and taking more castles in the Isles in and around the Arbor. That's how you do a successful Ironborn conquest of a region. You synchronize a weaponized old, ma- old way with shock tactics and strike at weak points and keep fucking moving. I don't know why I'm yelling. You want, kind of wonder whether Balin was really all that invested in actually occupying the North and ruling it through conquest when you consider how asinine and half-assed his fucking plan was. He really just seems to have thought about the invasion from the perspective of satiating his wounded pride at the expense of an actual strategic, strategic plan for the invasion. And that wounded pride and bitterness has bled out into his surviving offspring. Throughout A Clash of Kings, we've been seeing these dysfunctional sibling relationships breaking apart each family trying to present a united front. We saw that with Stannis and Renly, we saw that with Tyrion and Cersei, and we see it here with Theon and Asha. Theon can only sputter that Asha didn't bring enough men to fight off the northern army coming for him, and Asha can only snap back that Dad didn't order her to save him. Neither is addressing the elephant in the room. That both Theon and Big Daddy Balon screwed up big time, and their screw-ups are now merging. Even if they were trying to address the big picture realistically, personal baggage is weighing them down, especially Theon. Asha points out that Theon is the one who has made himself a permanent pariah here. Instead of convincing everyone he's tough, killing quote-unquote Bran and Rickon has made him public enemy number one. How does Theon justify himself? By declaring that he has avenged his true-born, iron-born brothers, Roderick and Meryn. Uh, there are just so many levels of bullshit at work here. First of all, you know, Theon didn't actually kill Bran and Rickon. Secondly, he never gave a damn about Roderick and Meryn. Thirdly, as he himself thought in his first chapter, the Starks were not responsible for his brother's deaths. None of that matters to Theon, though, because he is just desperately searching for a justification of which his father might approve. Theon feels that he must somehow, somehow wind up king of the hill at the end of all this, and so he drapes his brother's deaths over his atrocities. We are seeing the lost cause mythos of the old way at work. This is how it keeps going. Our foolish and morally bankrupt revolution got our sons killed. Clearly the solution is to kill their sons, thus erasing our insecurity over losing the last war. The bitter irony is that Theon doesn't even believe in what he's saying. He's just trying to be the kind of person who would say something like that. Because Balin might actually love that guy. But Theon's not that guy. Asha knows it. She rolls her eyes and brushes off his feeble attempt to claim the family mantle through revenge, which which suggests that Balin would react the same way. He wouldn't be impressed. Theon doesn't belong, and they all know it, and there's nothing he can do. 
even parading the corpses of his other family, isn't good enough. As Asha points out, Theon has guaranteed that he will pay the price when the Pendulum of Revenge swings back in his direction via Sir Roderick. Theon wanted to play the Game of Thrones. This is what it looks like. For all that Asha mocks Theon, for all that she's got her own blind spots that will be made clear to her in Feast and Dance, what makes Asha different from the Baratheons and the Lannisters is that she still loves her wayward sibling. Her mockery is tough love at the end of the day. Asha wants to secure her position against Theon, no question, but that's turned out to be easy, and that being accomplished, she doesn't wish him any specific harm, and he's still her brother, her last brother. There are worse fates than being useless, and Theon is currently diving headfirst into one of them. Asha gives Theon one last chance to come back with her. Swallow your pride, accept consequences for your actions, and give up your self-image. He refuses, of course. Theon has come too far to turn back now without the massive humiliation that he genuinely fears more than death. He will live or die as the Prince of Winterfell. So Asha leaves him to his fate. With one last dig on her way out the door, your crown is just so ugly. (laughs) That captures how Theon's drive to make something of himself has come to nothing, especially relative to her, and he knows that. As Asha rides out of the castle and out of the book, Theon finds himself wishing he had gone with her. If only. So, to riff off of what Emmett said, like, two seconds ago, uh, (laughs) Theon is Asha's last brother. Whatever else he is, he's still her brother. And he's her baby brother at that. So, maybe I can't speak for all sibling dynamics, but I myself come from a family where there's just two siblings and that's it. And I think that oftentimes in a sort of environment where the older sibling might not have had that, like that kind of nurturing environment. Um, and I seriously, it never says Balon abused Asha in any way, but I highly doubt he was all that hands-on. I get the feeling that Balon's high praise for Asha is based around how well Asha was able to make her own way. Like he kind of strikes me as one of those dads that's like, look at my baby girl. She leads a pack of wolves. And it's like, yeah, you left me in the woods to die. What did you think was going to (laughs) happen? (laughs) You know? So, I mean, said older sibling really doesn't really, because of their rough environment, they don't always know how to guide the younger sibling in any other way other than tough love. So I know I've had my own experiences with this. Um, I I know this is going to come as a shock to everyone, but I am a youngest sibling. No way. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have an older brother and he definitely had to make his own way. And he really, really loved me and he wanted to guide me, but he really did not know how to approach it other than to just be really hard on me all the time. And so my brother has an IQ of like 172. I'm just used to him. He's just always been the smarter dude. It's just a reality I've come to accept, you know? And what my brother would do growing up, if I asked him a question, it's like in his mind, he knew he was smarter than I was. And I'm not going to come to the conclusion as fast as he would necessarily. 
he would be like, I could like give you a fish and you eat for a day or I can teach you to fish. So he would do this really, and I feel bad talking about it now because he knows he did it and he's apologized. But I mean, he would do this really condescending thing where he would walk me through the thought process. Like if A plus B equals C and we have A plus B in front of us, your answer is you can do this, you know? And it's like, as, as much as I hated it, it did teach me to just like quickly come to conclusions a lot faster than other people can. And I, I do think Asha has a lot of that in her, you know, of course there's the competitiveness. Um, so in my opinion, the intent to go to Theon at Winterfell was purely an act of love, even if that tough love was thrown in the mix. So I kind of like to believe that Asha would still have a soft spot in her heart for Theon, even if she didn't feel as secure in the secession as she does now. Um, I mean, it might translate a little differently, but I mean, we could go down so many rabbit holes if we talk about Song of Ice and Fire purely in the framework of ifs, you know. Um, but the bottom line is that she did show up to Winterfell, which she pointed out to Theon, and she didn't have to do that. You know, so she could have just sent him through or she she could have just sent for him through her own men. And at the end of the day, half heartedly tell herself and others that, you know, I tried, um, but she did like she went personally because she genuinely genuinely wanted to make sure that he came back with her. So even the number of men she brought with her, in my opinion, is telling. She brings just enough for an escort of her own and just enough to leave for Theon in case she cannot talk him out of his blowhard fuckery. <laughs> so yet I think she also purposefully brought too few of men in an attempt to kind of scare him witless into coming back to Deepwood Mott with her. It's a gamble, but that's where the tough love plays in again. So the fact that she left men with Theon at all shows how much she loves him even more because Asha doesn't really, like she's a leader that doesn't really see her subjects as disposable. And it's part of what makes her such a good leader. And she's leaving them behind knowing good and damn well that they're probably going to die. Mm -hmm. So though she wants to help save Theon, his missteps aren't really going unchecked by her either. And <laughs> again, um, the way that Asha knows how to serve up guidance to Theon is by being really hard on him. But at the same time, I mean, can anyone blame him? He's a huge fuck up. But <laughs> so what's happening here is Theon is being thrown a rope and we see him struggling with whether or not to grab hold of it, even though we see him consciously admit to himself that he should. So, he he goes back and forth. He's like, fuck your rope. I need that rope, but fuck your rope. Damn, I need that rope. It's just, it's too much. It's too much. So while Asha is a semblance of the very first thing that Theon remembers being home, she's already made it abundantly clear to him that the Iron Islands are not his home anymore. So though trying to help him, she does exasperate this with the tongue lashings she gives, she keeps giving him. And I mean, they're really well-deserved, but I mean, it's like she wants him to do one thing and inadvertently she discourages him from doing that thing that she wants him to do. You know, like she doesn't come out and say this, but a lot of her whole spiel is like, I need you to trust me, Theon. I need you to trust me. And his very first re-encounter with her 
was her pretending like she was some babe down by the docks and touching her own brother's penis. That just, (laughs) I love Asha, but that's like one thing she's done where I'm like, girl, we need to talk. Okay. So Theon instead clings to the only home he's really known for the last 10 years. And that's Winterfell. And even though it's made clear to him that he is neither wanted or welcomed there either, you know, better the devil you know. And as previously pointed out by y'all, being in a hostile, tense environment within the walls of Winterfell is a feeling that's he's that he's way too familiar with. And it's sadly becoming sort of a mother's milk for him. So I, I think that on a certain level, Asha recognizes this, and it's why she leaves him to his own device, but not before getting in one last jab on that damn crown. And I just, I just want to say right now, like even the first time I read through Clash of Kings years ago, I cringed so hard (laughs) during the, during the crown scene, because it's like, even with all of like the details going over my head, like, I mean, oftentimes, like when you're casually reading something and you don't know that you want to dive into it as much as you end up diving into it, you, you miss a whole lot of things, but the crown did not escape me. It's just like apex of douchery in my mind. Like it just, I mean, he's like putting it on and I can imagine him just like thinking to himself, like I made this, you know, (laughs) like I can't, sorry. I had to. Okay. Well, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, Asha is trying to convince Theon to do something, but at the same time, she's trying to convince him she doesn't actually know him all that well besides just a few chance encounters when he was a kid before he was shipped off to Winterfell at the age of 10 and then briefly reuniting reuniting at Pike much later on and at Lordstown before that. So it's like she doesn't know like the right ways to actually like talk sensitive. So she tries to approach it like like an ironborn person would like she tries to like just give the someone the cold hard truth and let him come to his senses. But Theon isn't really convinced by that sort of argument so to speak he's more convinced by flattery by someone helping him getting him out of a jam and that's interesting because the next scene we're going to talk about involves someone offering to get theon out of a jam and sure enough theon's like yes absolutely do that as soon as theon's last hope vanishes over the horizon ramsey pops up behind him with comically perfect timing As I said in Theon 4, Ramsay starts off in the background, obscured by his disguise as Reek, but he steps closer and closer to the reader with each appearance, unveiling himself at the end of the book. Now we learn that he was the one going around killing the three Ironborn men who accompanied Theon to the mill, though we still don't know why, nor have we learned what exactly Reek had in mind at the mill. All we know is Theon is covering something up, in the real world as well as in his dreams, and in the process, he has sold his soul to the devil. If the three deaths at Winterfell parallel the three deaths at Harrenhal, then Ramsay is playing Jock and Hagar's role as the shape-shifting assassin. The seductive logic of violence begetting violence leads Theon to conclude that he should have Reek killed as well, but he didn't because Reek can read and write, so maybe he, you know, squirreled away some written evidence of what they did. And this is where George basically needs Theon to be blind to the implications of his own thoughts. <laughs> it is a gigantic red flag that this peasant, looked down upon by everybody, somehow became literate. 
something something I, I love is like it, I love that small detail about Reek's literacy because it feels like a spot where George had a had a real writing problem and ended up resolving it in a way that speaks to Theon's growing paranoia and works towards the awesome in a chilling, horrifying way that payoff at the end of Theon's arc. Here's the writing problem. Theon has had Reek killing his own men to keep the secret of who he murdered at the mill alive. So why keep Reek alive as well when Reek also knows the truth about the mill? Answer, because Reek is literate and he would so totally leave a written account of what happened, right? Does that seem particularly intelligent? Plausible even? Nah, I don't think so. Where would the message be kept? Who would Reek give the message to? Why would anyone trust what Reek broke down, whether it was actually a truthful account of, the, of what was happening and how would the message be recovered in Winterfell? This is an extension of Theon's growing paranoia we've seen throughout this chapter. But that paranoia which George writes into Theon's characterization is realized in the plot as Theon's rationalization to keep a literate Reek alive. And then this sees the chillingly awesome reveal at the end of A Clash of Kings, that the reason Reek is literate is that he's Ramsay and he has been trained how to read and write. Theon is just not smart enough to get beyond the surface of how an odd detail can affect him beyond the present or the near present. That's true, but it's not even this one detail. As if that wasn't enough, Reek then claims he can rustle up 200 men, offering no real explanation as to how that can possibly be the case. As if that wasn't enough, George throws in a mention of Reek's pale eyes, not long after the reader was reacquainted with Roose Bolton. (laughs) Theon, too, has met Roose Bolton, as Stephen Atwell noted in his essay on this chapter, but he doesn't pick up on any of this. Why not? And in part, it's what Catelyn said when Jason Malister didn't recognize her back in book one. He saw a pair of mud-spattered travelers by the side of the road, wet and tired. It would never occur to him to suspect that one of them was the daughter of his liege lord. Sandor says something similar uh, right before the Red Wedding in an essay that's uh, Stephen Atwell, uh, actually, a chapter that actually Stephen Atwell just covered. Sandor says when he's telling Arya why he wasn't recognized by a knight, Knights are fools, and it would have been beneath him to look twice at some poxy peasant. Keep your eyes down and your tone respectful and say sir a lot, and most knights will never see you. Theon's fragile vanity is built first and foremost around his sexuality, but his sense of class superiority is definitely a contributing factor. It is beneath him to dig deep into a peasant's motives, which ironically prevents him from realizing that Reek is not a peasant at all. Theon was dealt a terrible hand, no question, but it is his own unexamined worldview that leads him to dig himself deeper and deeper into the hole. His own identities are tattered cloaks he wears, despite how transparent they are, and yet he cannot perceive how Reek is a cloak Ramsay is wearing. Like Asha, Ramsay is pulling off what Theon can only try and fail to do. Find authenticity within artifice, hence the emphasis on Ramsay as a writer, like George. Ramsay skillfully unlocks Theon, first by pointing out the obvious. Without Asha's help, Theon is now thoroughly screwed. As Ramsay himself pointed out the night Theon took Winterfell, there are still plenty of fighting men in the north, and they don't need Rob's help to take Theon down. Then again, Theon still has one big advantage, the castle itself. Winterfell is a terrific defensive force multiplier. It doesn't take that many men to hold. Is that a long-term strategy? Nope. But like his dad, Theon is not really thinking in the long term. He is just trying to steady his shaking hand. Reek uses the promise of those men to get himself a bag of stark silver, a horse, and escape from a castle about to be under siege. The beauty of how George writes this 
is that it's plausible that this is all Reek wanted. That's what Theon thinks to himself. He ripped me off. That's the last time I'll see him. Again, if only. <laughs> the first time Reader is left to conclude that Reek just wanted out. And the chapter quickly moves on to deeper, darker matters. What Theon thinks of as a long-shot backup plan is, in retrospect, the key plot point of this chapter, just like Tyrion sending off Littlefinger ends up being the key plot point of the Battle of Blackwater. (laughs) Theon watched Asha ride away with his hopes, and now he watches Reek ride away with his doom. Theon brings his fate down on him, as he himself said. Before Reek leaves, though, he makes sure to sink his meat hook claws deeper into Theon's soul, because Ramsay is not just a torture device. He tempts Theon into hell and then punishes him for his sins. Ramsay makes Theon culpable in his own downfall, so as to make it easier to break him. Ramsay's weapon of choice is guilt as much as the flaying knife. Reek asks that in exchange for saving Theon from the consequences of his actions, he be allowed to rape Paula. After all, he says, she was already raped by the Ironborn men, so what's another assault? This is Ramsay expressing not only a desire to commit atrocities, but an entire worldview behind the atrocities. The world quickly shatters innocence, the shield of the soul, and after that, you're meat, you're prey. Again, it's all about the cycle of violence. Murders justify more murders. Rape justifies more rape. As Theon thinks, he's gone too far to turn back. Ramsay's argument that Paula has been broken in, and so is fair game for further rape, reflects real-world arguments that leave women prisoners of not their own bodies so much as how men view their bodies. A lot of this stems from a perception of humanity as sullied by contact with sin and suffering. George is showing us how that perception, far from working to reduce human misery, actually ensures that misery continues. Theon is becoming more like Ramsay, and so ends up a prisoner of Ramsay's world, subject to the same torments as his previous victims. The circle of violence comes round and closes, and the bell tolls for Theon at last. Yeah, Ramsay had to have seen how easy it was for Theon to have been manipulated into doing whatever anyone else wanted, save for Asha. All Ramsay had to do to become Theon's confidant was to bend the knee to Theon and tell Theon he'd bathe. That was it. Lewin was able to, and then in Theon 4, Lewin was able to convince Theon to spare everyone but Osha with the bare minimum of effort, and then Ramsay was able to easily manipulate Theon into murdering the miller's wife and sons and his own ironborn men just as easily. Farland shamed Theon into conducting his own execution Ned Stark style when Farland had really no power other than shame, other than to shame Theon into doing something. Flattery, advantage, getting Theon out of a jam, and shame. Those are the ways that people use to get Theon to do their bidding. Chillingly, Ramsay has been up close and personal with Theon and has seen all of this. And it's like, it's almost like he has a set of keys on a key ring and with each, and with each key, he's able to unlock a door in Theon's mind to get him to do his bidding. Here, Ramsay reaches for the get Theon out of a jam key and offers him a potential lifeline. Some good boys he can summon up so long as he has a bag of silver and the chance to rape Paula. Remember Paula, who'd already been raped by two ironborn men? The same Paula whose safety Theon had used as leverage to force Farlin to accompany and aid Theon in the hunt back in Theon 4? Paula means nothing to Theon. His word to Farlin means nothing. He had come too far with Reek, as he says. Ramsay is bending Theon to his will, unlocking the void that is Theon's interior life and filling it with worse and worse evil. As I said back in Theon 4, before Theon becomes reeked to Ramsay between the end of A Clash of Kings and the start of A Dance with Dragons, the process is well on its way. 
and he'll be using all of the keys to break Theon and refashion him as his own creature, as Reek himself. Mm, perfectly said, sir. You know, really as good as these chapters are, we're going to have to bring our A-game in the years to come when we get to Theon's dance chapters. It's, uh, it's incredible stuff. So the, the rule of three hangs heavily over this chapter, and there were three dreams earlier which might lead one to conclude that we're done with dreams. But those were all of a set, and the final nightmare in this nightmare of a chapter stands all on its own, longer and more grandiose than the rest. Theon's subconscious drags us back to the beginning of the story. The, the, the feast welcoming Robert to Winterfell just before this war began. Like the Battle of the Whispering Wood, this night defines the good life to Theon. Wine and women and song. And also like the Battle of the Whispering Wood, it has all been corrupted by what he's done since. The room goes dark. The wine turns bitter. The music seems to fall apart around them. George describes notes hanging bleeding in the air. It's a powerful dream image. The story that makes us who we are, the song of ice and fire cradling our characters, has fallen apart. The word of God has gone silent. In terms of Tolkien's cosmology, the song of Iluvatar has given way to the discord of Melkor. Theon looks up, and he's dining with the dead. Robert Baratheon, once the avatar of furious life, is spilling his guts out on the table. Eddard Stark, the man Theon helped behead people, has himself been beheaded. The ripple effects of these deaths has led Theon to this point. He knows the rest of the corpses, too. The men who died with Ned at King's Landing, and those who died when Theon took Winterfell. All the weights on Theon's soul. Everything he has left behind. An army of the dead. This is the heart of Theon's subconscious gauntlet of guilt, but it doesn't belong to him alone. George widens his camera to include Lyanna, Brandon, Rickard, the Stark ghosts recently invoked by Jaime. Theon's downfall, driven by needs specific to him, is nonetheless part of this larger tragedy, intertwining like branches from neighboring trees. Theon is glimpsing the tree of life, from which we all sprout, hang, rot, and finally fall. Beyond it all lurk those icy shadows Theon sees, the White Walkers, the triumph of death. Then the doors crash open, and the winds of winter come howling in to claim the summer nights. Rob and Grey Wind are the last of the ghosts, and the most terrifying for both Theon and the reader, bleeding from dozens of wounds, their eyes burning through the darkness. Somehow, Theon is catching a glimpse of the Red Wedding. This is never fully explained on any literal level, but it ties into the sense of fate at work. Theon simultaneously feels like a prisoner of his own agency, and also like a puppet on strings with no agency at all, and I think that's the human condition right there. It really is. And back in part two of our three-part analysis of Danny's House of the Undying chapter, Clash of Kings, Danny 4, I mean, you brought up the point that's really st stuck with me. You said, the single most iconic scene in this series is so iconic, so memorably dreadful, and you're talking about the Red Wedding here, such an inversion of the state of nature that it beats down the walls of space-time itself, sending signals back into the past. That stuck with me, and sorry for quoting you so much for this episode, because I, I think that's in evidence here in this dream. The pulsing signals of the Red Wedding reach as far away as Karth and as far north as Winterfell, spreading beyond the space-time continuum. But there's a key commonality between Theon and Daenerys seeing the Red Wedding, the presence of sorcery. For Danny, it was the drugs and the House of the Undying itself, which showed her true visions of future events and past events. There was the, also the Weirwood doors that Danny passed through and a thicket of Weirwoods that also grows outside of, in the Winterfell Godswood. 
Perhaps it's the presence of the werewoods, which have magical properties that we see in A Ghost in Winterfell and Bran's third A Dance with Dragons chapter that influence the sorcerous dreams that Theon is having. Or maybe it's just Winterfell itself. Given that George has already layered Winterfell with magical overtones, and also given that we see another castle in the form of Storm's End with magical wars to keep Melisandre out, you could make the case that nature and Winterfell are rejecting Theon by giving him disturbing dreams. It's almost like they're saying, get out. I will keep giving you dreams until you leave this place. Perhaps that magical power then extends to giving Theon disturbing visions of the future too. And we could potentially see a taste of Bran having that in Come the Wind's Winter. Also, I, I don't know if this is a note of hope or not in this really bleak chapter, but there was a key absence among the dead Starks. Benjen. Benjen is not present among the people that Theon sees as dead. Perhaps this is a very subtle clue that Ben Stark is indeed alive. So, hooray! That's the one shining light in this chapter, right? Maybe. So, I don't know. I kind of disagree with you on one thing you said, Jeff. So oh, boy. Shocking we would disagree. No way. Anyway, I mean, I, I do want to put it on record so that everybody can hear. <laughs> I agree with Jeff's whole Barris and Turncloak thing. Okay. Anyway, so moving along. I think that Winterfell is right where Theon needs to be. I do. Like, I, I don't think all those dreams are Winterfell telling him to get out. Um, I think in a really twisted sort of way, those dreams are letting him know that he definitely has a place among the Starks. And I'm going to kind of <laughs> repeat what I said earlier about like, yo, I'm not a theory crafter. I just notice correlations and then I go, hey, they're here. And then I hope somebody else comes along and puts them together for me because I'm also that lazy. But so... I do want to talk about like manifestation of dreams, especially the prophetic ones. Um, and I do kind of want to talk about Melisandre. I think we all know I've been itching to talk about mm -hmm. Melisandre and her interpretations of her visions. I don't know if she, she doesn't have dreams, does she? She barely sleeps. Um, anyway, so to get into, like I, I, I said earlier, in this episode that I get a whole lot of dreams that come to pass. It's one of those things I don't expect people to take my word for it. Usually when people do take my word for it, it's after they've known me for a while. And it's when I offhandedly say something like, yeah, so I had a dream this and this and this happens. And then it kind of comes to pass. And that's like, I always remember everyone's like moment of realization that I'm not just like bullshitting about the dreams for Jeff. It was, Hey, yo, if I ever happen to pop up in your dreams, don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. But um, with that said, um, when one, when dreams start to manifest or when you're worried about dreams manifesting, the funniest thing can happen because I know for me, sometimes when my dreams manifest, it's very literal. It's extremely literal. You can't miss it. But most times it's like, it's not literal at all. Like there are certain things. It's like one time I had a dream that I was riding on a bus with no bottom, like some Flintstone shit. And we ran over alligators and I got alligator guts all over my bare feet. That's not going to happen, you know, <laughs> but it's like there are certain things within the dream you know it's kind of like Melisandre she has I feel so bad for her because I feel like her visions are 100% legit it's the interpretation of the dream 
that she struggles with Hmm. now, you know, to kick this back to Cersei and Maggie, the frog. And again, these aren't dreams, they're prophecy, but the whole point I'm getting at here is like this terror that something you feel like is going to come to pass might come to pass. And sometimes the steps we take to try to prevent it from happening and it happens anyway, there have been a couple pretty big occurrences in my life where I have dreamed something will come to pass and I go out of my way to prevent it. And then like a goddamn movie, I end up self-fulfilling that prophecy. And I look back on it and I'm like, you dumb bitch, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, I don't think that Theon at the forefront of his mind feels like oh, these are prophetic dreams. These could be prophecy. But there are things that not at him. You know, they're important enough to him that, you know, he's waking up in the middle of the night, he's sending for Maester Lewin, and it's like he needs Lewin's, like, assurance that they're just dreams. Because on his own, he doesn't actually believe that they're just dreams. Like, he wants to bring along someone who is all logic to be like, they're just dreams, you know? And even then, he's like... God damn it, you're of no use to me. Um, So with that said, I think that obviously this whole dream that he has with all the dead people, Bruce Willis, um, I think it's 100% prophecy because there are certain details of the memory, there are certain details of the dream that there's no fucking way that he would know, you know, um, like that Lyanna Stark would have a dress covered in gore, AKA placenta. Um, I I mean, or that she's wearing white or even like, obviously he had dreamed that um, Rob had died. I think that's what really made the dream terrifying to him, but I am going to put on my tinfoil hat a little bit and really go for gold with getting myself banned from this show. Because uh, f- fingers on the button. <laughs> because fuck you, Jeff. Um, <laughs> so um, there is, Theon has this constant fixation with ghosts in Winterfell. And that's later on when we get to dance. Um, and there are quite a few um, not verses. This isn't the Bible. There are quite a few passages um, regarding that. You know, he keeps saying things like, oh, there are ghosts in Winterfell. I'm one of them. Uh, when it talks about Jane slash Faria's wedding to Ramsay, the bastard Bolton, you know, it talks about how um, it felt like some strange underworld, like when he's talking about the Godswood, it says it felt like some strange underworld, some timeless place between the worlds where the damned wandered mournfully for a time before finding their way down to whatever hell their sins had earned them. Are we all dead then? You know, and then he has that moment where he's, and this is a quote before that. He's walking Jane to the God's wood and it says, but under the hood, his hair was white and thin and his flesh had an old man's grayish undertone. And he says, a stark at last. And I will come back to that because Hmm. I think there is a correlation between Starks and dead people and how he really does have a place among the Starks, but his buddy buddies might not be the living Starks as much as the dead Starks. Hmm. But anyway, tinfoil. Um, 
so I mean, there's there's that whole thing he has going for him. So when it talked about his skin being gray and his hair being white, I don't know if George is trying to tailor him after the Gray King. It's just imagery that did pop into my head because the on the way that it's describing him, he does look like a corpse, especially since he feels like a dead man. He refers to himself as a ghost all the time. And I'm definitely not the person, first person to come along and say this, but I do think that the Grey King is a lot like Patchface in the sense that he's mm. like a water white, you know? Um, but, you know, we talked about this earlier, how the... Um, I don't know. Anyway, the, the, the Ironborn have their whole blowhard lore and all that other stuff. Like, even when it talks about the Grey King, I do think that when it talks about him slaying Naga, you know, um, I don't know who came up with this theory. I'm just acknowledging it is far from mine, but Naga is theorized to be just a weirwood ship that's been turned upside down on its hull so that it looks like rib cages. Hmm. I think that whoever the great king was he went down with that ship and he drowned and somehow he rose again so in it's like a way of slaying naga anyway um i wrote really really vague notes on this and bullet points because <laughs> i really do want you guys to dialogue with me about this especially i'm gonna i promise this will all circle back it will circle back it will um so anyway um Let's talk about Patchface. And speaking of water whites, how creepy he is, how he's always talking about under the sea this, under the sea that. Um, he's probably a subject to whoever the drowned god is. And there are quite a few people that really believe that Patchface, when he says under the sea, he's referring to like Weirwood Network hmm. in a way. Anyway, again, this is me just throwing out dots, not being like, oh, they connect. So I feel like the Drowned God, Patchface, and Weirwood, they're all kind of intertwined with one another somehow. Um, so um, I don't know if any of the listeners here have ever watched that Disney movie that almost put Disney under, The Black Cauldron, mm -hmm. or they... <laughs> I, I know you have, Emmett. I know you have. <laughs> I have not. Good, good. Okay, so one of the very first conversations I've ever had with Emmett on Twitter was about the Prydain Chronicles that The Black right. Cauldron is based off of. Of yes. course. Of yes. course. Okay, so for those of you that don't know, Black Cauldron is a Disney movie based off of books called the Perdane Chronicles. Mm -hmm. Black Cauldron is the second book in the series. Um, the first movie, I think they were going to do more, but whatever. Uh, the movie is just kind of the first and second book combined. However, one theme that they share is that there's this big black cauldron and it produces this whole army of the dead. Um, the big bad is the horned King. And he's using this cauldron to just, summon these dead folk to go out upon the land and wreak havoc, which is extremely familiar. Um, and the only way to stop the Black Cauldron in both the books and the movie is if a willing living being sacrifices themselves and climbs inside the cauldron. Um, I remember it being one of my very first traumatic moments as a child, watching Gurgi just 
Anyway, so <laughs> um, in the books, I feel like there's a bit more of a Theon parallel than the movie because the man that decides to throw himself into the cauldron as a sacrifice, he spends the entire book being a fucking dick. Like, this is the dude that, like, he'll open up a door and be like, oh, after you. And then when you go to walk in, he'll just, like, you know, shoulder check you out of the way to go in first. He just really definitely for kingdom and glory, but not you because fuck you sort of, he's, he's a blowhard. And at the end of the book, when they realize that someone has to sacrifice himself for the, or someone has to sacrifice themselves to go into the black cauldron, surprisingly this blowhard dick decides to climb into the black cauldron. And I feel that I don't really know the mechanics of it, I just have this whole headcanon. I feel like Theon's end game as a character is like it has big black cauldron energy, big old BBC energy, but not in the same way that you think. Anyway, but but I do think that, like I don't think Theon takes out the army of the dead on his own. I think he kind of gives a good assist. And one of the ways that he does that is in this sort of like, what's reminiscent of the black cauldron sacrificing himself in some way. And I hate quoting the show, but I think that the show kind of got a little bit right. Cause if you remember in the show, Theon's kind of the last man standing before Arya is able to swoop in and do her thing. And I don't know. Now that I think about it, I don't think the show was lazy at all. I think it is what it is. Sometimes you're going to misstep. Sometimes you're going to misstep at the finish line. But I do think that they did try to throw in a little nod to how Theon might end at the books. Whereas like he did, I think he kind of bought Arya a little bit of time before she somehow soundlessly swooped in. Anyway, so Theon, he had like earlier, Emmett, you had mentioned, um, Ramsey and the candlelight and it looks like this whole like scary camp stories thing and then mm -hmm. I was reading some stuff and I caught a line where it talks about um the guests at the um wedding and the way that the lights were touching their faces and it says here and there a torch burned hungrily casting it casting its ruddy glow over the faces of the wedding guests. The way the mists threw back the, sh the shifting light made their features seem bestial, half-human, twisted. Um, that's not part of the theory. I just wanted to throw it out there because I was like, cool. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I feel that, especially with um, Theon had that whole chapter with Barbary Dustin in the crypts, I think it served a purpose more than just bar raving like yeah i'm gonna give i'm gonna give ned stark's bones to my dogs because one time brandon stark bones <laughs> me down and now i'm mad you know i even then bone i think she's bone. half full of, <laughs> yeah like even then i think she's half full of shit but um i think that in some way theon's fate is tied to the dead starks like the crypts like i could see that yeah yeah, you know, and like he, him having this dream specifically about all the dead. I mean, there mm -hmm. are so many, I mean, it, it dead people does keep to his whole theme, but why suddenly break away from his guilt and go toward 
the dead that he had nothing to do with that were completely beyond his control. I mean, there were people out there that never mind. Okay. Anyway, there were people at that feast that he definitely had control over, but but um, it's both. And I think you're right. It's, it's getting at his guilt, but also just his fear of, of joining the dead and how he's going to be remembered and what he's part of. And that ties interestingly to the idea that, yeah, that the Starks, the, the, that bittersweet idea that he becomes a Stark only in death and that the Starks he was really meant to join are the dead ones, not the live ones. I like that right. a lot. Right. So that's part of kind of, I feel like Theon will make his way back to Winterfell. I think mm-hmm. that's his final destination in a lot of ways. I have no idea what Ash is trying to do with that whole weirwitchery thing. It could sure. just be her thinking on her feet because she mm-hmm. doesn't want her brother to burn alive. That could because, be, yeah. Because who would? However, you know, when Ash is like, well, then give him to the tree or like execute him in front of the tree. Like the right. first Raven was just like tree tree. And the other's like Theon Theon. So it's like, he's Bran wants him. The weirwood wants it. I don't know. Anyway. So that's kind of, I meant to circle that back around, but I rabbit trailed mm-hmm. instead. But I mean, those are the dots I'm presenting you with dots. Fuck you. If you want me to connect them. <laughs> Delicious dipping dots. <laughs> So yeah, after that final nightmare, there's just uh, there's just nowhere for Theon to hide. He can't trust uh, Lewin's uh, sleeping potion, and raping Kyra gives him no respite. As you said, Jeff, it's that heiress pattern of paranoia and predatory behavior. The next morning, Theon wanders the castle alone, like he's already one of those ghosts that Alicia was talking about. The Godswood is the heart of the castle, the magnetic force that will draw Theon back to it in A Dance with Dragons. It all comes from the tree. And Theon knows that's Ned Stark Street. It's where we saw him cleaning ice back in book one. Again, like Jeff was saying, Theon feels like he's trying to be a transgressive Ned Stark, a shadow of Ned Stark. But that's Ned Stark's tree, and Ned Stark's godswood, and Ned Stark's castle, Ned Stark's people, Ned Stark's life. All his, even in death. Theon has just put his life on the line to make it all his instead, but he knows deep down that it wasn't worth it. It will never be his home. It's all a charade, a mummer's farce, and that revelation finally hits home in full in the final words of the chapter, as Theon gives the game away. He stares up at the heads, and they stare down at him. They're not Bran and Rickon, Theon admits at last. They're the boys from the mill. This reveal pays off and sets up so much at the same time, yet George executes it so quickly to leave us gasping and wondering what's next. George hid this secret in plain sight. We know Theon failed to track Bran and Rickon properly. We know that Ramsay had a plan involving the Miller's boys. We know that Theon had to redress the boys' corpses, and we know he had a secret dangerous enough to kill three of his own men over. Yet the first-time reader is extremely unlikely to put all this together before the reveal, because we were directly told in Tyrion and Catelyn chapters that Theon killed Bran and Rickon. We fell for the shadow on the wall. Yeah, and you can just see George's television writing coming into focus at chapter's end as George hits the readers with his massive revelation. And that reveal at the end of this chapter is over and done with in a flash, and it forces us as readers to keep turning the page to find out what occurs next. And then we're in the middle of the Battle of the Blackwater. We're going to wait, you know, about 13 more chapters before we get to Theon's final chapter where we get more resolution. And then to Bran's final chapter in A Clash of Kings where we get the full resolution. But to make this reveal as, as awesome as it is, George first lays a false breadcrumb trail with previous chapters leading us to think that Bran and Rickon are actually dead. 
it's a trick that George uses quite well in other contexts. Like, who killed John Aaron? We're led to believe that it's Cersei Lannister for the longest time. Turns out it's not Cersei Lannister. That's a false breadcrumb trail that George has been playing, laying in advance for the readers to deceive them when the reveal is actually that it's Lysa and Littlefinger who did the deed. Again, George's episodic and television focus is something that I think crafted him into a writer when drives the plot and the narrative forward in, in a way that's very impactful and meaningful as i'll talk about at the end of this 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 depth portion but i think it's also just awesomely done on george's part and it really shows that george can do a setup and payoff really really well it pulls the rug out from underneath us when theon says that the people of winterfell just projected bran and rickon onto the faces ramsay had flayed the features off he's talking about us we are the observers tricked into thinking the starklings are dead we are Old Nan and Farlin. Theon is the equivalent of George himself. He set the stage, manipulated the truth, like the images in the House of the Undying. Speaking of prophecy, this reveal is also the payoff for Jojen's vision about Reek killing Bran and Rickon and skinning off their faces. The image held a divine truth. The fault was in the observer. Jojen, like the reader, was working with incomplete information and misread what he saw. Those boys weren't Brandon Rickon, just like Reek isn't actually Reek. These identities have been cut loose from their moorings, drifting as signs and signifiers. There is no pure identity. Everyone just wears their masks. As the first-time reader recovers from the shock, they might also suddenly realize that Brandon Rickon must still be alive somewhere. And then suddenly realize that whatever Catelyn did with Jamie after the cliffhanger in her last chapter... It was based on false information. Everything is coming together and unraveling at once, which is a perfect capper to the fragmented, kaleidoscopic nature of this chapter as a whole. All of that will pay off later. On reread, the, ch the character ramifications stand out more clearly. Theon has been lying at every level about what he did, as well as why he did it and how he feels about it. It's all a put-on. Theon has been acting like he belongs here, just like he pretended those boys belong here, just like how Ramsay is pretending to be Reek. Even now, Theon dodges the impact of what he's done, displacing, displacing his self-loathing onto the people of Winterfell. They're such fools for not seeing the truth. Just another transparently ridiculous justification. But like the telltale heart, Theon's guilt worms past his defenses. He can't help but compare the wind tugging his cloak to small ghostly hands, like the hands of a child. It doesn't matter who those kids are. Theon will carry them with him forever. And I think like uh, Alicia, you were talking earlier about like the, a ghost in Winterfell and how Theon is becoming this type of person who is in, in, uh, haunting almost the castle. And we see that here in, at, at chapter's end is Theon by himself wandering around the castle of Winterfell, which is exactly what happens in that Ghost of Winterfell chapter to Dance with Dragons, where he's left to his own devices, wandering around, no one caring about him, him caring about no one, but trying to find some sort of redemption. I kind of hated myself for even how in this reread I felt a sense of relief that it wasn't Bran and Rickon who were dead, even while knowing that two other children took the Miller took the boys' place. The Miller's boys were sacrificed in the place of Bran and Rickon to cover up Theon's sins slash mistakes. But George isn't thinking of the sacrificial lamb from Tabernacle-era Judaism here, as he'll later do in The Forsaken when we talk about for Aaron Greyjoy and things like that. 
Instead, it's a play, I think, on Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac from the book of Genesis that I see more clearly here. In that story, God tells Abraham that he must sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. And the connection that I think stood out to me so strongly in this reread is the final line from the chapter. People were such people were such fools. If we'd said they were rams, said they would have seen horns. In the biblical story, Isaac is only spared when God finally speaks to Abraham, telling him now that now God knows that Abraham fears the Lord, and then God provides a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead of Isaac. In George's reframing of the Abrahamic and I, Abraham and Isaac story, the ram isn't a ram. It's actual children who are sacrificed in Bran and Rickon's place. Bran doesn't actually find this out in the books so far, I think, but I like in the show how Bran overhears Lewin telling Osha about the Miller's boys. And Theon, you know, he bears the full responsibility and culpability for what he did, but Bran doesn't know yet. I think he's going to find out at some point. And when he does, I can't imagine the guilt that Bran will experience. I I mean, we're seeing Theon's guilt here. Bran's guilt is also going to be there as well. It's a, a brutal sensation to have someone die for you even when you had no control over it. You know, as much as power and control as Bran is getting, you know, he can't take that back. He can't do anything about that. I think that's going to be very bitter for him as well. Mm-hmm. So shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, I was comparing the murders in this chapter to the murders of at Harrenhal in this book, but of course it's also foreshadowing the murders in Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons. Once George comes back with Theon and Dance, he, he seems determined to kind of replay and revisit a lot of crucial scenes from Theon's earlier chapters, and so again we see murders in Winterfell. And I think, like too, it's 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 referenced in this chapter that. Theon doesn't know if he can trust the washerwomen in Winterfell. They might be out to betray him, or out to be, or up, or they might be the people that are killing the people in Winterfell. When of course he and Reek are the ones who are doing it, and we see that specifically in A Dance with Dragons, as Mance and the Spearwives pose as a singer and and washerwomen and show up to Winterfell and then proceed to commit probably at least three murders, if I'm not mistaken. Although they do not claim they were resp- responsible for the for the murder of of Little Waterfrey. That was totally done by Big Waterfrey, of course. We talked about in Theon one. Yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, it's an interesting echo, and Theon even himself brings up that echo. So that's something we'll be watching for in Theon's dance chapters, is all those interesting parallels and contrasts to his class chapters. Speaking of which, Theon will be hunted along with Kyra by Ramsay shortly after they are imprisoned in the Dreadfort, just like he is hunted through his dreams in this chapter. Ramsay makes the castration dream literal, and he makes the hunting dream literal as well. All these nightmares unfortunately come true. Yeah, the prophecy is is, is at work in Theon. I think... Mm-hmm. I, I like I like what you're saying, Alicia, about all the dreams actually having like real prophecy behind them, and they're not just simply like the unsubconscious, like roaring to the forefront of his guilty conscience. There is something at work with what Theon is seeing in all of the dreams he experiences, and I think we see the fulfillment of that dream, similar to how you were talking about, in ways that he wouldn't, he couldn't possibly dreamed of. But he has had castration and being chased through the woods, thinking that it's wolves that are chasing him. In fact, it's not wolves that are chasing him through the woods, and it's not the it's it's not the miller's wife who castrates him. It's Ramsay and the and the dogs, and of course Ramsay who castrates him as well. And then Asha thinks that Deepwood Mott's location is ideal for reinforcement and supply, and is close enough to the sea. She also implies that she can quickly abandon the castle and make for the safety of the sea very easily. This is kind of what she tries to do after the mountain clansmen come up onto Deepwood in A Dance with Dragons. Unfortunately, Asha. As we were talking about, her claim proves overconfident in the mountain clansmen and Stannis' army overtake her ironboard, ironboard fleeing from the deep from Deepwood Mott. So Asha is acting a little overconfident here and talking about how great Deepwood Mott is. It actually doesn't work that all that well as a, as, as a defensive structure. And in fact, her plan of retreat doesn't actually pan out either. 
Yeah, it's interesting that Asha's, you know, all of Asha's confidence in this book kind of kind of withers in Feast and Dance. Not 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 like Fan where like her whole worldview turns out to be wrong. It's just these <laughs> crucial details that she could ignore until they catch up to her, which I think is very relatable. I think even the the best intentioned and, and good st- strategists, you know, everyone ignores problems until they become too big. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's that's one of the more uh, universal human problems. <laughs> Uh, interesting note to come back on reread is realizing that Lewin asks Theon if he can put the boys down in the crypts, which is where the real Starks are hiding, mm-hmm. ironically. Like, I always wonder, like, oh, man, if Lewin had, if Theon had said, okay, fine, do that, Lewin might have just ruined everything. Like, he might have gone down there with some men and ex- accidentally exposed the Stark boys. I think that's what happens in the show, right? I'm, I'm trying to remember if, like, Lewin accidentally goes down into the crypts and... I think that's what happens. And then no, that's where he... No, remind no, me. He, well, okay, so he takes so he overhears the guy who plays dagmer and theon talking about how he put the miller into the ground his troubles are done and so lewin goes up to the bodies and he has himself another look like basically trying to see if the bigger boy was crippled and then cut scene he's talking to osha in the Hmm. crypts yeah okay Okay. well that's good knowledge i I haven't seen season two in a long long time but uh, i've seen season two too many times to erase (laughs) it from my memory (laughs) It's, it's burned in there Absolutely. And then finally, for foreshadowing groundwork, amidst the vision of the Red Wedding and the dead feast that Theon sees, Theon also sees that Lyanna has a white gown with gore on it. A white gown might just be a white gown, or what I think is that it could be Lyanna's bridal cloak that she wore, implying not only R plus L equals J, but also that Rhaegar and Lyanna were married, which of course is something that season seven of the throne show depicted, and I think is likely going to be confirmed in the books as well. That romantic backstory and the um, tendency in this universe for there to be a lot of uh, husbands with two wives, that's just a kind of constant motif, whether literal wives or kind of figurative, like in Stanis and Melisandre's case. So yeah, I think that's, that's I think it's likely they got married to whatever legal extent, and I think that's a good catch, Jeff, that that might be a, a clue towards it with the color of the dress. Thank you. So, moving on into our theory slash discussion portion of the episode, uh, you, you know, this has already been such a, like, a brutal <laughs> chapter and episode, so I hesitate to even bring this subject up, but it's a theory that revolves heavily around this chapter, and that is the idea that Theon may in fact have been the father of one or both of the boys he had killed. Theon claims to have repeatedly had sex with the miller's wife back in his swinging pre-war Winterfell days. And he was certainly old enough to father the younger child, who was uh, roughly Rickon's age. Theon might not have been old enough to father the older one, who was uh, roughly Bran's age. Theon would have been like 11 or 12, which is certainly possible, but uh, I think <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> I think it's interesting that the Miller himself seems curiously absent from all this discussion, as if George is like saying, hey, you know, that's not the father figure in the room that you need to be looking towards in terms of where these boys come from. In A Dance with Dragons, the hooded man that, that Theon uh, runs into calls Theon a kinslayer. The spearwife Rowan later repeats that accusation, even as she says she knows that the Starks were not his kin. So what's she referring to there? Crowfood hmm. Umber also calls Theon a kinslayer in his release to the Winds of Winter chapter. So that's the kind of more direct evidence that some people know that Theon may have killed his his own children or one of his own child children, and George is getting that across to us. In terms of more kind of you know, thematic and emotional stuff... When Theon thinks back to killing the Miller's boys, there there seems to be something beyond even the murder itself that he is repressing, that he is struggling to simultaneously remember and forget, something on the knife's edge in his mind that he keeps getting drawn back to. And this wouldn't be the first time he failed to recognize his own family until it was too late. 
the same thing happened with Asha back on the Iron Islands in this book? What if the same thing happened with his own kids? And that's just, that would be so just bitterly ironic if, if you know, Theon, he's, he's always looking for a family to call his own, but in the process, he wiped out the only family units that hadn't rejected him. The only thing that was truly his, and now it's gone. So, the only true parentage theory that grinds my gears more than Tyrion Targaryen does is kind of the, well, I mean, we can talk about Nettles and how she was actually mixed if you want, but we won't go there. Anyway, um, I just am not feeling the whole Miller's Boys and Theon theory, and there are a couple of different reasons. Um, to talk about Rowan and how she called Theon a Kinslayer, there actually is, and I only caught this when I was rereading last night, but there actually is a moment when Rowan refers to Arya as his sister. Hmm. So basically as his kin, and he's like, well, she wasn't she wasn't my sister. And Rowan's like, yeah, I know, but she was basically like your sister. And I mean, sure, in that sure. moment, she was definitely trying to cozy up to Theon because she was the first person to come along and not so subtly be like, so how'd you... Um, how'd you uh, come into Winterfell anyway? <laughs> um, but I mean, to me, if Theon doesn't even know that he could have fathered either of the Miller's boys, I, I just don't see how he would possibly know, like, or how the rest of the North would possibly know that. I do think that the Northerners that call him a kinslayer, they are referring to the Starks. Um, I think, like I said, I think the hooded man is Robert Glover. To me, oh shit, I just had this moment of realization that it can't be Robert Glover because he knows that the Stark boys are alive. <laughs> Fuck! This is happening live. <laughs> the hooded man just destroys lives. Well, yes, I know. That's how I, that theory goes. Well, I, it was either Robert or Harwin, and I just don't think it's Harwin. So sure. it, it could be someone else who has as of yet to be named or featured in the books. But I mean, I, I just, I've seen, to me, it's a matter of convenience to call him a kinslayer because it's sure, one of those I things where it's like his entire life, he's basically, it's made abundantly clear to him. You're not actually a Stark though. Like mm. we'll politely call you a ward, but you're a hostage. Um, so, I mean, I can see when it serves them, not so much when it serves them, because they're not wrong. You know, like, why would, how could you kill the Starks? They were like your brothers. So, hmm. mm -hmm. I, I just don't. No, that's totally a solid argument. To, to me, the whole, like, Miller's boys and Theon parentage is, like, yet another secret identity sort of tinfoil plot. Though, I mean, there are plenty of plausible plausible clues that you talked about but i would definitely throw out the rowan argument personally sure sure personally well i, I think it's like one of those things where you know where, where people will call someone well someone or someone will accidentally like stumble upon the truth like they'll be they'll the, rowan might have been referring to theon as as a kinslayer in, in reference to to bran and rickon but that gets like a deeper truth that Theon is a Kinslayer, but not a Brandon Rickon, but of, of the Miller's boys. I think that's that's like a thematic argument you can make for Theon being 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 the baby daddy there, or of at least one of the kids. I, I think, you know, for me, 
I like to think about this in, in contrast to, to Theon's first chapter in A Clash of Kings, where Theon spends half the chapter banging the the daughter of the of the captain of the Miraham, um, which has led to the theory we talked about that Theon might potentially have a have a child through through the captain's daughter, a, a bastard child. And I think that would be a way that Theon's line, so to speak, would, would continue. And I think it, it would parallel here to have that kind of bookend here at the end of, close to the end of Theon's arc, to have him kill his own children potentially, while also fathering another child potentially at, at, at earlier in the in the book. Um, I also think too, when we're talking about like, like Theon killing the Miller's children, because this is not something we're going to really talk about a lot in Theon 6, and we're not really going to get back into Entula, Dance with Dragons, and especially the Winds of Winter. I think ultimately Theon has to come around to bearing some culpability, whether the Miller's kids are his own or not, for what actually happened there. Because Theon, even in the Winds of Winter, even after he has been humbled and has begged Bran and Rickon, Bran for forgiveness at the at the Weirwood Tree, he's still in denial over doing something wrong with the Miller's boys. As he says in Theon 1, he never wanted to do any harm to Bran and Rickon. Reek made him kill those boys, not him, Reek, but the other one. So Theon here is still in this place where he's like, I, I you know, I, it wasn't actually my fault what happened to those kids. It was Reek who did it. It was totally Reek who, who, who led me on there. I think for Theon's arc to be complete before he dies and before he passes on into the Stark, into the crypts of Winterfell and joins with the Dead Feast, I think Theon has to reconcile with the fact that he not only has to ask Bran for forgiveness, but the boys as well, his potential sons. He has to realize that he did something wrong, that it doesn't matter that it wasn't Bran and Rickon, that it was actually two living children that he murdered there. And that's even if he never realizes that they're his kids, or even if they're not even his kids. I think the broader point remains that Theon has to be, have to be, has to have a cognizance to recognize he did wrong and to seek forgiveness from from the Dead Feast or the Werewood Tree or something or another in order to proceed forward to the end of his arc. I think that has to that, that makes his arc full and complete, even as he sacrifices himself on behalf of Bran and the Starks at the end of the story. You know, I did just think about something that is that lends to the theory that Theon could be the Miller's son's father. Um, that whole Ramshead thing with Isaac mm. and Abraham. Just I I already put my foot in my mouth once with the Robert Glover thing. I don't want to <laughs> do it twice. I'm just I'm just giving you that one. <laughs> well, giving horns, yeah, that's a fair point. So there's a there's a comment on I noticed it in, on the live stream by by Derek B who says if Theon is the Miller's boys' father, it really is the perfect inversion of the Isaac story. Theon goes to sacrifice Brandon Rickon, and the devil convinces him to sacrifice his own sons instead. So I think that's like a really just chilling way of looking at of of reek acting as the devil figure to to theon and him convincing him not to sacrifice a ram but instead to sacrifice children i think that's that's a brutal way that we can see the 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 interpolation of the abraham isaac story for the book of genesis do you think we'll ever actually know for sure probably not i guess I could see this one being being uh, left off the table, especially since, as Alicia was you know, pointing out, it's not really necessary to define what's happened. It's an interesting, you know, interpretation of what's happened, but this is not like a whole. It's you know, not like oh, we got to find out who tried to kill Bran, you know, with the cat's paw dagger. Like that's a that's a dangling thread you need to be resolved. This doesn't need to be resolved. So I could see it potentially being outside uh, the explicit domain of the books. 
I, I agree with that as well. And I think I put that in the same category as the Tyrion Targaryen theory, which I don't sure. think will be explicitly revealed in A Song of Ice and Fire, even though Tyrion is totally a Targaryen. Sorry. <laughs> don't roll your eyes. I'm right. Um, but but I, I think it's it's more important for Theon to just to get that thematic like endpoint for his arc and realize that he should have played the role. He should have been list. He should have been. Uh, is Abraham the right word here? He should he should have not have been holding a, th- a knife up to anyone's kids, regardless if they're his his kids or not. I think that's that's ultimately the takeaway from a song of ice and fire that killing children is bad. I know that's a little bit controversial to say, but it's true, I guess. So I think that about wraps us up for this analysis on A Clash of Kings Theon 5. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. And thank you to my opponent, Alicia, for joining us. Where can we find you online and tell us all about the things that you are doing in your own life? The little small things that you're doing in your life with with your life. Okay. Um, I suppose you can find me on Twitter. Um, That's at totes, not Alice. (laughs) That is totes, not Alice, even though I logged in as Alice. I hate myself. (laughs) Anyway, um, if you feel so inclined and you want to follow me on Instagram, that is hangry like the wolf. Wolf is spelled with an E at the end. It's, I mean, it's in my bio on Twitter. And I, it's 2020, so I'm doing exactly with my life what everybody else is doing with their life with a super hyperactive dog to share space with <laughs> so and you will you will find lots and lots of hyperactive dog content <laughs> on my twitter that's true and you're also with uh you also appeared a couple times with that gray area on her uh, obsidian nights podcast oh you wanted me to plug that i'm sorry okay, okay. <laughs> you can talk about your dog. i like talking about dogs i miss my dog um yeah i'm sorry about duke right yeah i'm sorry um yeah so i have done an episode with gray area on obsidian nights um we did a danny yes danny three for game of thrones i liked that one we just recently recorded a cersei special um that one has not been released yet i don't know maybe it has it's it's been a long life um (laughs) but yeah so i've collaborated with her about twice now and trying to flail my way through this appearance (laughs) and yes i just i i consider myself a song of ice and fire socialite rather than a content creator (laughs) so if you just so happen i like that yeah if you want to socialize with me you can find me on a couple podcasts here and there and there's my twitter so it's wonderful the edith wharton of a song of ice and fire well thank you thank you so much for coming on yeah, it was an absolute blast. And, you know, all kidding aside, it's good having you as my friend, I guess. And it was awesome having you on this, this episode, too, to talk about dreams and all this stuff, because that brought a lot of stuff that I would never even like consider talking about for, for this chapter, which is great and awesome. So thank you. As always, if you have the, ch- the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify. Leave us a like and subscribe to us on YouTube, all that sort of stuff. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. 
Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and the Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon Murrowful, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Later Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghost Woods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunotar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker at the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Carly, and our newest High Ladies, Lady Joan, and Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy. So thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies, and big welcome to Lady Joan and Lady Amy. Good yeah, thank her. you all. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, thank you all so much, and, and welcome to, to Joan and Amy for uh, joining us as High Ladies. Really appreciate your support, and awesome to have you with us. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 5, in which... Mm, the battle of the Blackwater begins, bitches. Yeah, it's gonna be great. I cannot wait. We are gonna be like in the in Blackwater for like the next a month. No, beyond a month at this point. I mean, are we gonna be able to do Davos three in like more than in like one episode? I don't think so. I'm sorry. We'll take as much time as we possibly can, folks. The battle of the Blackwater, of course, is the climax to a clash of kings and one of the biggest and best parts of the story. So yeah, we're not actually sure, you know, exactly how many episodes we're going to be doing for each chapter and combining what when. We'll kind of figure it out as we go, but can't wait to have you with us for that. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Alice for joining us, and we'll see you all next week for a Clash of Kings Sansa 5.